Trap, trap, Bernie Sanders. Trap. Swag, swag, Bernie Sanders. Swag. Thanks, ugly Cell phone, Bernie Sanders. I'm a model, check my glamour. I'm disrespectful as the fuck. I'll hit your bitch like a hammer. All these niggas wanna trap now, cause my wrist game, Bernie Sanders. Yo, bitch, sit on my lap now, cause my dick game, Bernie Sanders. Your bitch ugly, but she. Hello, and welcome to the popular show. A, um, a slightly popular show. A, a, a now slightly popular show, uh, rather than potentially popular show about politics, populism, pop culture. Um, I'm Alfie. Welcome. Thanks for joining us online, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, I'm one of your hosts. Here's another one. Hello, Izzy. How are you? Hello. I'm great. Lovely to be here. See your excellent faces. Good to see you. Good to be good to be back together. James, how are you? Uh, I'm all right. Yeah, I'm absolutely delighted to be back on the uh, computer waves. Lovely to see you've everyone. The, you've got the timing of that wink just right. Uh, David, how are you? I am celebrating the uh, peaceful transition of power of, of Joseph Robinette Biden uh, to the presidency. Uh, we've never had a president with a dumber middle name. <laughs> what is his middle name? Robinette. It's like, a, it's like a small Robin. It's a smaller Robin. It's a I mean, Robinette. I, or it's, I, yeah, yeah, exactly. Or it's I always a, find it fascinating like that um, Hillary Clinton is Hillary Rodham. Clinton. That that is like something out of a kind of 18th yeah. century novel. That's what like a really cruel schoolmaster is yeah. called. Robert. Yeah, absolutely. Funny story. Um, the Rodhams are also from Scranton, uh, so <laughs> so that's that there is a Scranton connection. So uh, myself, uh, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, uh, uh, you know, many sort of coal barons and uh, and other coal miners are all from this Scranton area. So just know, I might be next in succession. Yeah, you know, Rodham's of Scranton, Slavic's of Scranton. These are like places <laughs> where I buy my fishing tackle or something. That's what, yeah, that's absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, you assured us that, um, you know, when the orange man departed and the man from Scranton uh, emerged victorious, that we'd be entering a, a, a time of unprecedented peace and prosperity. But, like... There is insane weather where I am. I'm just, yeah. just out, outside Manchester. It's snowing here. Inside Manchester, there's floods, and yeah. people I know are being told they're going to get evacuated yeah. in a pandemic. This is like real disaster movie shit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this, this, is, this is not what you what you sort of led me to believe. You're supposed to be at brunch. That's what's happening here. We're, we're getting uh, 23 inches of snow tomorrow. That's pretty exciting. Um, it's, uh, that's, pretty, that's a nightmare. I have to run out and get baby formula first thing in the morning. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll we'll survive. But we do, as Canadians do, uh, we do move on. Uh, listen, tonight we've got a, a very um, packed episode for you. We're going to have a bit a bit more fun than normal, if that's even possible. Although you should check out the last half an hour of last week's show if you want to see some extreme fun. Um, and, uh, and uh, yeah, we're on every Wednesday at this time. Uh, so whatever time it is where you are, join us this, Wednesday, this, this time every Wednesday on YouTube. You should uh, subscribe to us on YouTube as well and like the video if you're listening. And if you really want to support us and, and keep us in, the, in beer, you should follow patreon.com slash thepopularpod. Um, and there we put it out all sorts of other content as well that isn't on the normal things as people do on Patreon. Um, and tonight we've got a, a, a really exciting range of guests. We're going to start very shortly 
um, with Angie Speaks, who's, a, uh, as, as I'm sure you know, a successful YouTuber and co-host of Low Society Pod. Um, and then later on, we'll be joined by um, two more guests. We're going to go through this as a kind of um, cycle of games. Uh, so we're going to have a bit more, a bit more of a kind of game show attitude tonight. And we're going to bring the guests in um, uh, as we go. And um, we're going to play some of the games that we usually play on the show. I know many of the listeners are fans of popular questions. Uh, you guys will be happy because we've got two rounds of popular questions tonight live. I sound like the guy from Sky Sports. Um, and we've also got uh, a brand new game uh, called Popular Pictures, uh, which we're going to kick off uh, very shortly. Uh, with Angie. Additionally, uh, I'm going to be playing mind games with people throughout the day. That's the other, the other <laughs> game element. So there'll be some other games. other kinds of games. Going I'll on. be gaslighting you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, yeah, this this week, any comments on the week? I mean, it is it is all going on, I suppose, in America. I guess it's still going to come out. We're going to discuss this as we go through. Of course, we're going to. We're going to um, play our games and, and reflect on the topics of the week as we go. But is there anything we should just uh, just flag? Man, I, you know, one of the things that I would flag is the the, the extreme horniness of the liberal uh, commentariat uh, on uh, about the the election of Kamala Harris and and Joe Biden. Um, the amount of people who who think that they can actually. Uh, enter themselves into some sort of the polyamorous relationship with these people is really something. We'll talk about that a little bit later when we get into the questions. But uh, I think that one thing that you can't miss is the number of people saying, oh, how either how wet they are, how hard they are, or how soft they are over this election. <laughs> we'll be kicking off early with this kind of blue rated content. I mean, it's nighttime here in Britain. No, I, 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 I can't. The um the QAnon guy uh, was on the BBC News today. I, I was, it was quite interesting. Hopefully, we can come to this later when we get into the inauguration. But it was some. It was really bizarre how the UK media over here had um had kind of um, presented that that's the stuff that's been going on today and kind of. I mean, it was very bizarre. It was it was quite quite clueless in some ways. But they actually took. They, I was surprised, you know, they, they did make out like, oh, these are the bogeymen. And it was a bit like this kind of Louis Theroux, like, let's look at some of these real weirdos on the far right in America who believe like that this is Trump's maddest kind of examples of Trump's base, which is, you know, it's what you'd expect from our liberal media over here, I guess. But um, at the same time, they gave them like so much like care and attention um, on an individual level. I, I guess they were just kind of, they're fascinated. I guess British, British viewers, liberal Brits are like really fascinated by the object of the Trump supporter. And there's something really got weird going on in the way the inauguration has been consumed over here with all that. <laughs> that, yeah. that actually, I have a question for you guys with that. Is it, is our, is this, is this our princess die moment? <laughs> it, <laughs> I mean, it, are, are people just, is it just, is it, it's a turning of a leaf and people are saying, Oh, it's back to normal. And also with, with things going the way they are in the UK, uh, is there some sort of feeling of, well, you know, your friend is getting married to someone nice or or at least someone nicer than you're divorcing? I think that's I think we've I think we've got to like treat today's show slash game show slash house party as a kind of therapy session, actually, for how this strange like election or strange uh, inauguration is making us feel. I think we should talk about our feelings over the course of this evening. As, as some, I'm willing to do that. And I, I bloody hate talking about my feelings as anyone who yeah. knows me would, would, would support. 
But I I'm willing to do it tonight. A little open and vulnerable tonight, actually. I yeah. Think. Although if I'm too open and vulnerable, we can cut that and only give it to patrons who should follow us on patreoncom slash the popular pod. <laughs> That's a challenge. Uh, right, okay, let's um, let's kick off. Let's kick off. So what I'm going to do, first of all, as we do, this is what you get on our show. You get live jingles as well as uh, fantastic political insights and humour. So I'm going to hand over to James, and uh, we're going to kick off and welcome Andy. Yeah, well, it wouldn't be a house party if a basic white boy didn't go and get a guitar pretty early on. So uh, here we go. Popular pictures. We've seen on the news popular pictures. Which one will you choose? I found this picture in my old desk drawer. The most popular picture of all. The most popular picture of all. My picture's got too small. Just, just carry on, and I'll just get the picture right. <laughs> well, after yeah. sorting that out, should we bring uh, our guest on, who's going to play this game with us? Uh, we will show the picture. Yeah. Angie, we've got Angie Speaks here. She's in the room. How are you, Angie? It's really great to uh, see you face to face. Thank you. <laughs> uh, as a long-time viewer of your, your videos and your stuff on Low Society Pods, um, great episode of the Fed Post uh, this out this week. Um, how's it going over there? It's good. I'm in London currently. Um, and this, I think this is actually the first time that a podcast show with actual British people on, um, that I've been invited on. So I'm, I'm really excited. <laughs> oh, I'm you in got, London. You got, kind of, uh, you got a kind of transatlantic thing going on, Angie. What, I what, do. What? Yeah. It's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> David um, slowly kind of, um, Slowly changing our accents on here. You know? yeah, <laughs> I, I, dose I, of American I grew up in both countries, and people yeah. seem to think that I'm like a huge big faker because my accent is all like dodgy and like messed up. <laughs> but yeah, on your YouTube channel, you make the kind you're kind of unusual on the sort of more materialist left, I guess, because you make those like high production values videos with all the costumes and all the clips um you know you dress up as the joker and all that kind of thing um you know that's that's great work you're doing the courageous stuff of getting out there on that sort of um broader younger left audience on on youtube but i'm not used to seeing you in a sort of what's what have we got in the background here in a kind of uh you know living room with we've got games consoles and water bottles and stuff i'm used to seeing you like on a kind of mermaid rock or something like that. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry to disappoint um, with the <laughs> absolute norminess of my setup right now. Uh, but thank you for the thanks for the lovely compliments. I mean, we can't let the libs have all the fun now, can we? So you know, got to put the costumes on, get the theater the theater kid energy going. <laughs> theater kid energy. Were you a theater kid? I was a theater kid. <laughs> the biggest roles. Um, I played Ophelia. Um, that was, I was the first black um, Ophelia at my, in my high school uh, production of Hamlet. So, yeah. <laughs> Magnificent. Yeah. So, so let's, um, let's, let's do the picture of the week. Uh, let's bring back up the picture of the week. All right. So Izzy, Izzy was there. explaining to the people who are like watching, but, but especially people who are listening, like what is we're looking at here? I'm sure we're looking at some pornographic data that shows uh, in 2019, at the time of UK general election, 
the day that the result was announced, i.e. Boris Johnson became our esteemed Prime Minister, lots and lots of over 50s had a massive wank all over the, the UK in all the relevant geographies. Yeah. But uh, it was particularly prevalent in um, Northern Ireland and some Wales. I didn't notice that this was regional. So we see the line, you know, everyone's sort of bumbling along around the average kind of, um, you know, number of times going on Pornhub for the, what is it, the, the few days immediately before the 2019 general election. Then there's a sort of drop off, minus 9% on the day of the election. Uh, then a, a, a sharp upward sweep, um, as Izzy says, among among the over 50s in particular. <laughs> We've got everything here. I mean, one thing that's that's interesting to me, to, my first thought when I saw this was how strange the the countries are in difference to begin with. And so we're, we're looking at sort of Northern Ireland. Well, it sort of has a bit of peaks and troughs, but generally doesn't watch that much porn. And the same can be said of Scotland, whereas Wales and England, um, you know, they're, they're, they're on more. Um, so, you know, you've got this sort of separation between the two, but then, I mean, you do see a Wales England in the peak, but in some way, the, the general election brings everyone's porn habits closer together in the UK. Yeah. So. Well, <laughs> now, now, the important fact here is that it says traffic change. Now, that's interesting because it looks like Northern Ireland and and wales they were taking it a little more northern ireland and scotland were taking the election a little more seriously because mm -hmm. during those hours where they could vote and the polls were open they were sitting there in a stoic way that many northerners do uh you know it doesn't matter how rainy or, or bad it is they're thinking we have things to do we got to make this vote however when the polls closed it was all business was it was off and the party was in the front I just can't imagine, I don't imagine the UK is a very horny country. There's just something generally kind of anti-libidinal about just being here <laughs> and living this kind of life. Yeah, do, uh, do, do you think that's true? Do you think that's the that's the comparison? That I mean, yeah, America's kind of got the reputation for being a sort of sex-soaked popular culture, whereas Britain's, you know, supposed to be this kind of uptight and repressed um, place. Uh, I mean, having lived in both countries, it, does that stereotype stand up? I think Americans are worse than us, ironically. Like, we're not horny, um, but mm -hmm. we're, we are we have a sense of humour about sex and a sort of yeah. levity that Americans don't have. Like, Americans are not really horny, but they're also, like, really uptight, even though their culture is really hypersexual. And the repression ends up getting projected into all kinds of like weird devious things especially politics i remember the whole nailing with nailing palin pornography that came out um during yeah. that whole sarah palin era and now you have libs talking about how they're like wet over biden and it's it, yeah it, the, the repressed sexuality often like kind of manifests itself on in these like weird sort of jungian freudian like forms it's really disturbing <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's really funny to think back to Sarah, pa Sarah Palin, who was um, who was the the running partner of um, of uh, bloody hell, help help me out. Who's the who's uh, who's the guy who? Um, oh, uh, John, McCain. John, yeah, McCain, John McCain. John McCain. Of course, yeah. John McCain. I, I like my war heroes who don't crash. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, this that kind of um, you know hugely sentimentalized, yeah, Princess Diana level kind of um, outpouring of grief and love for John McCain did sort of like cover over like the fact that he chose like the the gun milf as his as his <laughs> final, in that final that final um, that final presidential run of his. Um, but like, it's it's one thing the radical rights having kind of horniness in their political presentation but it's quite strange to see it like move over onto the lib side david you started work on uh, explaining some of this phenomenon yeah. like what 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 is going on what, what are the libs doing it's been time? really interesting uh, to see um you know sort of the anti you know to talk about anti-motivational or anti-horny sort of uh, politics to see people project onto the Donald Trump presidency, their inability to connect with their spouse, their inability to connect with other people, failing to date, their inability to, you know, sort of create intimacy in their life. That's been interesting, but also to see the opposite of that, where they're saying, actually, the politics of the country is what's going to dictate what my sex life is. Because as far as I know, people had kids in the Depression. As far as I know, people had kids during World War II. Why is it now that the politics of today are created in such a way that we actually organize our bedrooms based upon what's happening in boardrooms and election rooms. I think it's like almost union. Like the, it's, yeah. as if these, it's as if these sort of politi political figures serve as like archetypes. They're like yeah. the collective anima and like animus. Yeah. Um, there's also like, there's also this, this weird thing in the zeitgeist of like mommy daddy type of yeah. thing like fetish thing yeah. and um you know we're all kind of these neoliberal oedipal children in our like little atomized bubbles where everything's like fed to us <laughs> and served to us and the idea of like a sexualized maternal or paternal figure like appeals yeah. to a lot of people <laughs> um there's also I, and i mean with the i feel like there's a lot more sexual pathology on the so-called liberated sexual left than there is on the right. Because, I mean, on the right, at least the sexuality manifests itself onto understandable targets. Like, Sarah Palin is, mm -hmm. is crazy as she is. She's not a bad-looking lady. But, yeah. like, these decrepit, old, like, disgusting yeah. figures like Biden, like, it just, it just, it's just like a, a whole bunch of sexual pathology just, like, yeah. <laughs> It's Today, nice. someone said it was this Brooklyn dad defiant, and uh, he had a tweet, and which is like these. There's all these people who are, were created these like you know uh, auras around being resisting Trump. I mean, the guy's in New York. He's you know he has nothing to do with Trump, right? You know his enemy should be should be Andrew Cuomo, but neoliberalism prevents us from understanding that. But what he he tweeted today was, we know that Melania and Trump slept in separate bedrooms. One. That's perfectly acceptable if you're English. We all know this, right? I watch The Crown. But <laughs> if you can afford two bedrooms, why not? But the, the other thing I was going to say is that is that he said, but you know that Joe Biden and Dr. Joe Biden, he's going to be raw dogging her all night. Now, my question is, why is there a sexual taboo about not wearing a condom in a committed relationship? Two, she ain't getting pregnant. She's like 60. You know, like I mean, the the idea is like there's no there's no like, hey, tonight maybe we're taking the condom off. I mean, she's sixty plus years old. Plus, Joe Biden, I I he can't get to the car. I've seen those videos. You know, I I don't know if he's if he could drive a car in the bedroom either. 
I'll just give you a couple of more uh, examples of this kind of li lib um, jubilation expressed through bizarre sexual metaphor. Uh, Nashua Lina has been doing the disgusting work of documenting yes. this for future ge uh, generations. Uh, so here's one, Biden's flow, this is all blue tick stuff, I'm not going to dignify it with the apps, but uh, this is all, this is on Twitter if you want to find it. Biden's flow of experienced and qualified cabinet picks are like democracy foreplay, can't wait for the orgasm January 20th. Here's another, if you listen closely, you can hear the sound of pussies wetting for the first time in four years. <laughs> you're, not the only one, you're not the only one, uh, some of our listeners have picked up on this, uh, James. <laughs> oh dear! I I said that I would come if Trump won, but that that's like a, I I get off on I get off on the on the chaos like I get off yeah. on the I get off on the failures yeah. of like the neoliberal mode, not it being sort of entrenched. Like I mean, let, there's nothing sexy about the neoliberal mode becoming. I think that's something I sort of misunderstood really. Like in my kind of like attempts to explain like how. Trump and over here Brexit kind of beat like this anemic centrism that had claimed that it had the monopoly on on political possibility. Like I, I'd always said, you know, people have gone for this kind of libidinal politics, and uh, you know, when Trump says uh, you, you're you're gonna you, you're gonna be begging me, Mr. President, we can't take all this winning, and I'm gonna say. <laughs> Or like, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton can't even satisfy her husband. How could she satisfy America? This kind of, <laughs> um, like these incredible like zingers from uh, the, the Trump campaign, uh, you know, compare that to the, the kind of politics that no one could get excited about. And, you know, the left populist gamble uh, that we've lived through the rise and fall of in, in the last five years was that like we could provide the sort of libidinal alternative to get people excited about politics. What we didn't realize was that actually there is a sort of bizarre, disgusting, like libidinal dimension to that, that, that certain people have, I guess, if their material interests lie that way, they're able to kind of generate this like almost sort of false layer of like sort of weird, meaningless eroticism uh, towards, <laughs> towards this completely kind of useless figure. I, I don't I don't agree with this take. I think this mm -hmm. take is wrong. I, I think that what we're looking at now is is not uh, and I think the graph might maybe I can interpret the graph to back it up. But I, I don't think that's what we're looking at. I think that we're looking at um, people making public attempts to people have making public attempts to libidinally attach uh, attach the libidinal uh, economy to this politics and this this is gonna this is gonna fail in exactly i think you were right first of all that you know but what the right was offering what left populism was trying to offer was a libidinal politics that would be more successful than this completely uh, uh undesired based you know uh, liberalism that we've had and i think what you're seeing now is not uh, you're not you're not seeing the truth that people actually do have a libidinal relationship to liberalism bollocks that's not the case they're just pretending they do this is ridiculous mm -hmm. i'm going to have an orgasm and biden's organization this is mm -hmm. people have realized that politics has to be libidinal now and so the liberals mm -hmm. are trying to territorialize that space but mm -hmm. but their politics isn't libidinal whereas the politics yeah. of the populist left and the populist, the populist right are uh, so this isn't going to work and then it doesn't work with biden and this isn't going to work in the future and then hopefully that's an opportunity for us rather than a you know uh 
yeah it, it has what, to it has the vibe of that like kid in high school who like never got laid but was like yeah i like nailed her so hard and like yeah. it has that like really sad kind yeah. of like vibe to it and i mean it, they're sore winners at the end of the day like all all of the sort of uh all of the jubilation that they're doing is always sort of followed by the generation of one moral panic or another moral yeah. panic or another specter or another threat um you know that they're they're really sort of it, it's it's a sign of their lack of confidence and also a sign of the lack of excitement as well that's like um um you know actually behind this uh this win um and also most of the people who are making this sort of like joke or whatever are people who probably don't have that much libidinal satisfaction in their day-to-day -day anyway and yeah, probably... it's been the... Yeah, and I've spent the last few years sort of denouncing, you know, finding more and more kinds of sexual interaction to call out and denounce as unacceptable. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's another sort of borrowed kettle like contradiction sort of thing with, with the attitude to Trump here, because previously it's that Trump was the biggest, like most voracious pervert. You know, he fucks everyone. He, he's uh, unfaithful. He, he brings a porn star as his wife into the, the White House. There's a, a piss tape you know, that's going to be used to blackmail him. And this is the core of the, you know, uh, this disgusting sexuality is the core of the whole, like, way in which Trump's selling out America to Russia. So going from him being, like, too mm. sexual to, like, now the joke is, oh, they slept in separate beds. There's nothing uh, virile about him at all. Mm. That, that kind of points to the same, like, overcompensation in all directions that mm -hmm, he's, mm -hmm. uh, he's doing. Well, yeah, I, I, I think even... Sorry. No, no, I just want to go quickly back to what Angie just said about the, because I think it's quite interesting the point you made, Angie, about how, um, about the, here, that the, it's the libs who basically are struggling to kind of have this kind of, and probably don't have as much sexual desire going on. And it's not sort of like, this is, I think there's two points I want to make. One is that that's interesting because the liberals were desperate to make out that all Trump supporters were these bedroom dwelling virgins. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, the liberals were the ones saying, actually, all these people who are going to the right, it's because they haven't had sex. But actually, now it looks the other way around. And secondly, it's not—I'd say that it's not that it's not. This is a question about sex. It's a, it's a question of desire. The liberals are not just lacking sexual action. I'm sure they are, but but, but that's not really the point. It's that there isn't desire there. Uh, mm -hmm. Even even and at least on the right, there was at least desire to have sex. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. whereas and the liberals that, even that. that. <laughs> We see that in the UK with the, the idealization of Richard Sunak, um, the Chancellor, who um, in the height of eat out to help out over the summer in the UK, had all the Liberals were talking about Dishy Rishi, who you know consider, probably consider themselves in somewhat on the left, but obviously are not. And and it's the same issue, isn't it? It's kind of just did you have no one else to fancy? Do you have no one else to fuck? Clearly yeah. not. No. <laughs> No, it's really, I don't know, it's really sad because it's sort of, it's a wider issue in culture in general, now that we're all sort of atomized, you know, consumers, like, you know, the, the lockdown lifestyle, um, we're socially disembedded, um, you know, all, all people have now are these sort of parasocial figures to project desires upon um, and to sort of vicariously sort of live their libidinal dreams through. Um, but when it comes to sort of the, the lib liberal politics, it's anti-libidinal. It's it's puritanical almost. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's 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 there's a, a hefty focus on on punitive measures, shaming, 
um, you know, especially around the area of sexuality, you know, nobody has any autonomy anymore. We have to sort of sign consent mm. forms before we engage in. There's nothing sexual about it. It's 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 libidinal killing, and a lot of these people um, tend to focus a lot of their energy into the consumption of of pornography and sort of the um, lionizing of pornography as this like really woke kind of great thing. But it's really a libidinal killer because they're not experiencing their libidos in real life. They're not experiencing, you know, connection with others or the body. It's just yeah, all sort of yeah, yeah. chucked down this digital hole and projected <laughs> oh, on the yeah. it's, it's, it's sick. It's weird. Yeah. I think that's the, the, the other kind of um, side of this, like, like bizarre sort of fake sexualization of political fandom is a sort of infantilization of it at the same time if you're not talking about like you know being uh, wet for biden or something you're imagining the squad of the avengers um uh -huh. you're, you're kind of mediating political experience a few years ago it was harry potter now it's the avengers you're, you're mediating uh, your political fandom through um yeah through these kind of this kind of kids kids entertainment which of course mm -hmm. is all entertainment mm -hmm. Um, so this, yeah, this oscillation between extreme sexless, like, childishness and extreme sexless pseudo, like, erotic descriptions. It's Oedipal. Um, it's really yeah. Oedipal. And it's because this, the mode that we're living in makes everybody Oedipal in one way or another. Um, you know, we're all these sort of little children. And um, these are our, these are, th this is our mother's milk. These are, these figures are our <laughs> parents. Um, and yeah, it, it's an it's a weird like Oedipal like fixation. But I don't know. It, it makes me viscerally like burst out. Like I just ugh. I don't know. Like getting too deep into that psychology is just ugh. imagining what it's like in in someone's head like that. It's just ugh, it's disturbing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, in your sort of recent work, you've like I don't know done a lot sort of criticizing the pathologies of being on the left, and I think like after a big defeat you know we should be having a hard word with ourselves and i think that that's like very valuable work um but I, I i was sort of curious to like push you on to like critiquing this kind of more mainstream liberalism and i'm glad it's making you feel slightly disgusting to, to do so you know say what you like about the left at least it's just kind of entertaining to attack our own practices whereas these are the real <laughs> I think I don't know I think that it's I think that it's just the neoliberal mode and it's in everything I mean it's the ruling ideology it's the dominant ideology um even people who call themselves left or like you know identify with the left or um are sort of wrapped up in the sort of signifiers of the left often fall prey to these traps just as much as your like average like shit live does mm -hmm. um I, I mean, the shit libs are less self-aware about it, um, and they they they're sort of just sort of automatons to it. But it's it's part of everything now, and um, it's it's a pitfall that people fall into uh, quite frequently. I, I saw a kind of amazing like um, a version of that uh, just reading this week. I was reading a a, a contemporary review of of a book a book by Trotsky. Uh, he wrote. This book, Literature and Revolution, in 1924, and that was reviewed in um, in a, an English journal by uh, this literary critic called F. R. Leavis, and um, 
uh, Trotsky had said, like, okay, we've had the revolution now, and what we'll do is we'll just take the good parts of bourgeois culture and we'll give it to the proletariat, and we'll, you know, it will become radical because, you know, we're in a revolutionary moment. You don't need to worry about being sort of um, whatever corrupted by the fact this was produced by a bourgeois culture. And and the, the review says that um, this is going to end up as a kind of Hollywood because, uh, like, you, you can't sort of imagine that you can kind of be consuming the same culture and escape the... The, the logic of it, it, it it's uh, you, you know you, you think that what you're doing is just you know we're we're communist Russia we're you, you know we're fine to take kind of what we want from the West and just use it in our own way I think there's something of that in um, the left today where we think that we're immune to the kind of logic of the the dominant ideology of the culture that we're working in and mm-hmm. consuming but you know it, it we're we're cosplaying as Avengers just as much as yeah, uh, yeah. just as much as the shitlips are. I mean, especially in the media environment where all of those sort of uh, neoliberal metrics are, you know, sort of uh, important to follow as incentives in order to be successful. Um, These are things that, you know, oftentimes make people forget their values or neglect principles in favor of things like hyper visibility and the right accolades and credibility, which we've seen, I mean, you know, the, the fact that you, you had people like high profile people celebrating corporate censorship simply because, you know, Orange Man was like kicked off of Twitter or people celebrating like really crazy overreaches of state power or extrajudicial killings. Um, it's all about team sports and grabbing um, the moment in order to aggrandize oneself above one's peers. And, you know, it's political with like a small P, but it often obfuscates like politics with like a capital P. Um, Mm -hmm. And people sort of pretend to do politics when they're really just doing, you know, Machiavellian politics. Yeah, it's been utterly bizarre to see. I mean, we've we've been kind of observing this as well, like pretty much from the moment Bernie lost or Bernie conceded, just just that kind of... um, psychic latching on to Biden, even as even as um, even as people have been denying it. And then, I don't know, just really, as you describe, really reaching a denouement in the Capitol building kind of event where. Yeah, it's people, it's just incredible to see people buying into the idea that this is a, a kind of serious fascist coup or something mm. and uh, that it, it, it wore these people are terrorists, these people are fascists, uh, anyone you know, sort of saying this shouldn't be the basis of a new settlement on rights or whatever, or on censorship, is suspect themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's basically society as a panopticon, a war of all against all. Um, and it's also being codified into law as well. Um, there's some very vague anti-terrorist legislation being passed by the Biden administration. Um and it's just sort of a way to rid the public sphere of all forms of political dissidents. And it doesn't matter why you're a dissident, all dissidents is now bigotry. All, all dissidents must now be rooted in some form of, of bigotry. And I think it's a very dangerous trajectory for society to be going down, but it, the left seems to be egging this on. You know, I, I, I haven't seen, I, I haven't seen uh, leftists more excited about collaborating with the FBI 
and you know celebrating Lady Gaga marching down the streets with soldiers in I've never I never even conceived that something like this it's dystopian it, it's absolutely dystopian and I'm 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 appalled by the response um from people who call themselves like the left um I'm I, I struggle with that term myself now because there's obviously the values and the principles of the left, you know, populist uh, working class politics, but then there's the image of the left, um, what it's actually doing, what the people who identify with this term are actually doing. And I don't want anything to do with those fucking people. Um, I want to be as far away from those fucking people as, as possible. Um, and this was sort of the final nail in the coffin for me. Uh, it's not really about material access to a lot of people. It's about power and authority um and and that terrifies me yeah i mean uh most people who identify with being on the left are not on twitter are not extremely online are not kind of part of this parallel universe that uh, so many of our comrades have been sort of squeezed into but you know in covid times in lockdown times what is the left beyond its online representation it's not even just online though i mean you have people like the squad like aoc people who call themselves socialists that are talking about putting people on lists and like keeping people like holding people accountable it's far beyond just users online you have journalists you have actual sitting members of like political parties you have people who have power to shape the mode in the media and in politics who call themselves the left and they're sort of pushing for a technocratic, censorious order. And that's something that disturbs me. And I feel like people who are more principled need to do a better job of pushing back and um, supporting people who are pushing back and also saying our principles out loud, loudly and, and often. Yeah, I think that's quite right. I Completely right. A very important point. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I want, I want. I mean, most there's some questions as well from people who watch the show that are interested in what you're saying. There's a lot of people interested also in just talking about what uh, your boyfriend, your partner is playing in the background <laughs> there. I'm sure that is that Red Dead Redemption. We could spy <laughs> over the shoulder. Yeah, it is. It is Red Dead yeah. Redemption. Uh, I didn't need. Right. I didn't need to know. <laughs> uh, I, I could tell. Uh, although, yeah, some some guesses. Uh, and um, and uh, yeah, I mean, and so T was asking about this. Um, ask Angie about the Minotaur and the spider archetypes of the web. Does that make more sense to you than it does to me? Oh yeah, it does. Um, so <laughs> I, I've I've recently been talking to uh, a, a person who runs a channel called Meme Analysis, and they basically sort of talk about um, the Jungian kind of archetypes that are emerging in our culture. And um, he has this really interesting concept about the Minotaur and how um, uh, it's sort of the, it's the father archetype, um, but sort of the dark manifestation of it. And it, it harvests libido in the form of anger uh, or political fervor. Um, and, you know, there are different figures in culture who, um, man who sort of are manifestations of this archetype. So, Maybe a tr Trump could be a form of Minotaur, Biden could be a form of Minotaur, even someone like Vosh or any of those like silly online like, streamer people who sort of harvest libidinal like anger, um, anger from people. Um, and that's sort of the, the digital animus is sort of the, this Minotauric force that leads people into a mm. maze and sort of 
destroys their libidinal energies by leading it down a, a, a destructive path rather than a constructive path. So that's that's yeah, what the concept. Yeah. Is. Yes, so I'm you're sounding like a Jordan Peterson of the left, which I am. Um, that's my whole you... stick. My grift. That's my grift. <laughs> we're, we're, we're all Lacanians Lacan here, so maybe that's. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm cancelled. I'm cancelled here already. <laughs> but this is a, this is a, this is like a case then of like uh, you know those people doing the kind of meme interpretation and stuff being one step ahead of the liberals when it comes to working out how politics is libidinal and works on people's mm -hmm. desires and things like that. They massively, they, ha they understand um, something that the left has sort of discarded, which is like speaking to people on, not just in terms of material needs, but also in terms of grander, sp more spiritual mm -hmm. kind of um, uh, uh, ideas that, ideas that have a sort of spiritual potence to them which is something that the right wing has been able to do successfully. Yeah. Um, and they've been able to really reach people um, on that sort of libidinal, libidinal level. And um, what, what, what this, the society that neoliberalism, neoliberalism is trying to create is anti-libidinal. It's something that's supposed to repress, that's trying to repress the libido. Yeah. But the human libido is something that you cannot repress. It's going to manifest itself in one way or another. And it, it can either be siphoned off by minotaurs or you yeah. could really sort of use its creative potential to yeah. make something great. And yeah, I find it, I find it incredibly fascinating for sure. And, and, and that's, I think that's why that, you know, we obviously had this kind of famous phrase, the left can't meme, but that the left did learn to meme. Um, and this is why the liberals can't meme because the, the meme is this kind of symptom of libidinal political uh, energy or something, which the right was able to harness, as you were pointing out. And so it's this connection, I think, between uh, the way the left and the right relates to libidinal politics uh, and, and memes is actually quite a, a valid one. I think it's a good one that, you know, the liberal attempts to meme are are repressed. That, that's yeah. what they are. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I love that point. I think it's great. Uh, and also good to see um, J. Andrew Wells in the, in the, in the comments there, uh, yeah. friend of the show. Uh, he uh, he knows what people should do with the like button as well. Um, but I think this is a question for like um, both. I mean, he's directing it towards the Brit, but I first need to ask it to Angie and David because I I need someone to explain to me how shit libs in America use the Avengers. Wow. I mean, so, so that's that's really interesting. I I'll, I'll just hop first because I Angie's going to have a more thorough and and, and more complete. Uh, answer that I will. I, I think that the Avengers are really interesting because Avengers are like the polyamorous group of kids in college who actually don't have sex. They're like, I'm poly, but I'm like, you're a virgin. And that's what it seems like the, the Avengers sort of signify in this sort of lib culture is that, you know, it's there. It's all this sublimation of sexuality and sublimation of greatness and sublimation of the person we wish you were. I really wish that I had those one liners with my friends. Right. But you don't. You don't. You're not funny. You're not that interesting. You can't lift. You can't lift the cereal box yet. You know, it's, it's all too difficult for you. You know, you have your you have your your disabilities in your bio. I understand that's a big thing for you, but people are just wearing their weaknesses on their sleeves. So this those same people love the Avengers for some reason because those are the people who are just like them. And I think what we're seeing is that the that the people these people like the the Avengers for the same reasons that they sexualize Joe Biden. It's because they're never gonna fight and they're never gonna fuck. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Okay. Angie, do you want to? Do you think that's right? Has David nailed that, or do you want to add something? 
Oh no, I I totally agree. I think that I I think that it, yeah, it, it's a projection onto these sort of archetypes of strength. It's like the, these American sort of ubermenschen, um, mm. and people sort of live vicariously through them. Um, you know, especially when it comes to the like the concept of masculinity, which is like maligned. Um, uh, especially because you know the, the positive outlets for that kind of energy are scarce these days you know we're all in offices we're all behind computers we're all um you know kind of chained to the home and the desk and there aren't th th that many outlets for masculine energy in any of us because we all carry masculine energy um in mm -hmm. one form or another and um these sort of masculine archetypes um, in pop culture are then what we sort of live our masculinity sort of vicariously through. And mm. you see this, you see this pernicious sort of thing emerge specifically on the left where masculinity is something that's seen as suspect. Um, you know, they're, they're happy to cheer on federal troops. They're happy to sort of cheer on these sort of ubermenschen Aryan uh, figure, uh, action figures, because as long as it's, it's doing their bidding, as long as it's, it's sort of, they, they can't, then they have no agency in real life. So the, they, they see these, um, these things as sort of ciphers for their own agency in a way. And it, there's nothing more anti-libidinal or, or cucked um, to use a right-wing term than, mm. than that kind of um, psychological interplay. Uh, mm. and, and yeah, I've never actually watched an, an Avengers movie. I've never, it's not my, right. it's not my thing, but I, right. I do I mean, see that as a trope with the liberals a lot. Um, and I, yeah. I think that's why. Yeah, I mean, that, sorry, go on, Izzy. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to, um, so I watched the last one or two, don't know, um, because, yeah, dating the relevant person at the time that wanted to watch this, so that's, that's how that happened. Um, I, it does seem very different. It, it seems in essentially like a box ticking exercise in diversity which is why it appeals so much to liberals because in short their general premise seems to be that you know no one can achieve anything unless we're in a team but that team is a whole bunch of really privileged white people anyway into the first place with a, a couple of exceptions and, and at the same time even with those exceptions everyone is super privileged super powerful in the first in the first place but you still get to at the end of the day talk about how you're part of the diverse team and that's how you achieve what you achieve. Mm. Uh, maybe well. that helps us, um, I think that's a good point Izzy, and maybe helps us to answer Andrew's question because I think that Doctor Who has strangely that rep here and I mean like I was going to just agree with Andrew and say like as, as a not liberal myself I've never actually watched Doctor Who and I know that that's unusual in the UK um, but I, it seems to be something that old like boomer liberals watch and love. Yeah. <laughs> I love it, I love it, absolutely. Yeah, well, uh, I, it's my breakup watch up watch and it, I haven't watched it in years luckily and I'm still married uh, but every time I would I would uh, have go through a breakup I'd really nerd out get a couple bottles Doctor of wine who. and just watch Doctor Who because there's so, something asexual I mean, about Doctor Who and you can it's a it's a relief it's a world in which you are living and you're like I have purpose I have intellect things are more important than the things in my normal life you know the TARDIS is always bigger on the inside you know and and there's no no sex and, and i and i find it's the best breakup watch i was going to say that as part of the explanation there might be that the doctor always regenerates right yeah. so every yeah. series different <laughs> person playing him so him or her now so it's yeah. a kind of um yeah a kind of fantasy of regeneration 
in, in that regard. So I can see Actually, how it works with breakup viewing. But I'm no, looking at these five no. boxes of our faces, yeah. and this would be a great summary of like the next five seasons of Doctor Who. Yes. Actually, five, right? I can't Doctor wait. Who? I can't wait till the Doctor becomes a transracial. Black I was going to ask you. Yeah. Is, well, is I mean, Doctor already trans? <laughs> no, I mean, it's just like an important question. You know, I, I think that, that maybe the Doctor is the first trans character that, that's really been prominent in, in, a, in a show. I can't wait till he he's transracial. That's that's what I'm looking forward to the I most. Mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm with Andy on this entirely. Yeah. I, mean, I was going to mention before um, that, you know, uh, it was when the when we had the first female Doctor, it was literally lauded in all the liberal papers like British culture was changing yeah. forever. And and I think that you know this is a perfect example of this kind of liberal wokeness and yeah it's 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 not something to be uh, celebrated as a. Uh, uh, I think a, I think that in Britain uh, uh, the Harry Potter has much more of a sort of yeah. state for liberals. I, I don't know. I, I think that Harry Potter uh, uh, Doctor Who <laughs> maybe still a minority kind of political, but uh, <laughs> but it, it plays a double role because of of course Britain's liberals differ from Americans uh, American liberals because they're, they're much more selective in what they're progressive on. So like Br British liberalism has sort of you know a big place for transphobia. Like uh, Americans are amazed. Like they associate this with a sort of you know, right-wing evangelical kind of thing to be obsessed over bathrooms. Whereas here in Britain, actually, the right-wing press is is not so interested in that anymore. You have to go to the Guardian and the New Statesman to find the real kind of like obsessive fascination with um, with with, uh, with transgender. And so Harry Potter provides both that kind of same self self infantilizing kind of bullshit that the Avengers. Uh, offers American liberals with the added kind of sadism <laughs> of the fact that the author of Harry Potter is a total like online poisoned um, yeah. obsessive over, uh, over, over trans people. So like it's got an extra sort of twist when you come to Britain because our liberalism is just as self-righteous and shallow and insane yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and radicalized as American with an yeah. extra kind of like way in which they're more sadistic than the right on yeah. their chosen social issues. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. And I mean, um, again, it's it's sort of a it's sort of a, a way of ob obscuring like um, actual material issues that affect their favorite victims um, by sort of playing this representation politics and sort of making it seem as if societal progress depends upon you know, the image of a group rather than the material access of a group, you know, allowing them to create better representations of themselves that are more organic. Um, and it's a problem that you see in the black community all the time, you know, there'll be sort of a, a representative or a representation of, of black people that's like, you know, lionized by the media, but it's, it, there's an inauthenticity to it. Um, and especially because it's manufactured and many of the people who are chosen as representation don't reflect the class background of like the majority of like black people. Um, they come from a very specific kind of milieu. So it's, it's inauthentic, it's not organic. Um, whereas if there was more focus actually put onto materially empowering black people, you would see more authentic forms of representation occur because people would be allowed to unleash their potential and their competence and um, it wouldn't be this weird paternalistic 
um, you know, forced, contrived version of of, um, of diversity that we see everywhere. Um, and, and yeah, the, the, the relationship that liberals have to their favorite victims is always paternalistic. Um, and it's something that I've experienced in my like very sort of short career, um, if mm -hmm. I still have one. Um, and, and, and yeah, it's, it's, incredibly, it's incredibly pernicious and it's, it's very uncomfortable to experience. Angie, you're a fascinating thinker and uh, a brilliant presenter on, on uh, YouTube and on your, your podcast. Uh, and uh, we want everyone who's watching this who somehow hasn't heard of you to check you out. Uh, and we really want you to come back on and yeah. chat with us uh, again sometime. It's, uh, yeah, for sure. Thank you very um, much. I had fun. I had a lot of fun. Thank you. Um, I think Alfie is going to take command. Yeah, um, thanks so much, Angie. It was absolutely fantastic. Um, and um, I think it's time to welcome our, our next guest as we continue through this fun evening of uh, different games with different guests. Um, shall we say a quick hello? I think we should um, to Brandon um, before we um, before we enter our before I pass the uh, screen to your fantastic, charming guitar for the second time. Two out of three times tonight. Fans of the show are getting three times James tonight instead of instead of the regular one. So that's a special treat. Um, but it's a massive, um, massive uh, welcome to you, Brandon, uh, who's co-host of the Discourse podcast and, according to David, leader of the Swolitariats. How are you, Brandon? I'm doing great. No pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. When, when David uh, passed that that line to me, where did you? Is that your line, David, the leader of the Swolitariat? Absolutely. Absolutely, but it's the truth. It's the truth. It, yeah, and uh, you know when I when I when um, the when left lifts, we all we lift all boats. That's what yeah, I said. <laughs> when, when you said that, the first person that came to mind was Adam Proctor, who when I met him, uh, I, you know, he he was uh, from from Dead Pundits. You know, he he was quite swole. And yeah. I thought, you know, that. but then when I when I looked at uh, Brandon on Twitter, uh, I, I could see you, you were very much the leader of the Swanitariat uh, compared to anyone else on the left who goes to the gym that I'd ever met, Brandon. Well, I mean, I appreciate all the compliments. You know, I, I had no idea it was this kind of show where, uh, you know, yeah. there'd be compliments, there'd be video. Uh, I would have shaved, you know. I feel like I'm being ambushed, like a reverse intervention. <laughs> just like everyone just snuck up on me and tell me how awesome I am. So, you know, thanks. That's right. <laughs> this is what they call uh, I can't believe tonight is the first show that we introduced the shirts on policy for the men. You know, we, we decided, okay, maybe we need to like have shirts and shoes yeah. for this show. Yeah, the HR department got after us, and mm -hmm. uh, you know also the aesthetics department. But uh, <laughs> so what, you're, you're going to hear. So right, before we kick off our our, our second round over of the shoe, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, the people were saying post feet uh, in the chat earlier. Uh, I don't think that was for me, uh, but I think it was for Angie. But uh, later we may post some feet, and you're going to see some size. Barefoot 14s. is legal. Don't forget that. Barefoot is legal. No mask. No shoes. All service. <laughs> well, listen, um, uh, Brandon, uh, who you can follow at Pretty Bad Lefty, and you should be doing already, uh, is going to join us for a round of popular questions. So it's time to hand over to you, James. What is the popular question? Where'd you get such popular questions? What is the popular question of the week? What is the popular question of the week? 
Okay, I think we should also remind ourselves of the scores. Although I can't, I don't know if these are the yeah, these are the latest scores. These are the latest scores. Um, uh, uh, although I think we uh, we we had a point stolen from us last week, didn't we? By uh, Dumbitch Media, who you should follow. Uh, and today we'll play with uh, with Brandon. So uh, you want are you hosting games? Who's hosting? Uh, yeah, Maybe. sure. Yeah, so this is the segment where we get people to ponder what the most profound and significant question of uh, the week has been. Um, they're going to start with Izzy. What, what's your question of the week? Well, my question of the week, uh, very serious, is, um, is Baywatch the ultimate January lockdown viewing under Tory rule, at least in the UK? And the answer is obviously yes, and I'll tell you why. Okay. Uh, I, we know that Pammy is a comrade. So I'm curious about that. Um, uh, Brandon, did you come bearing a question? Uh, no, I actually didn't. I was uh, unaware <laughs> that we had, That's right. had to. No, you're not. No, you didn't have to. If you come back around. This is a very slick machine, this show. As you can <laughs> <laughs> And then Brandon has to judge uh, which question we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. All right. So go Thank ahead, you. Alfie. All right. Okay. My hey, question I, is. I want David's question. All right. Go All right. On. So I, you know, now <laughs> that, that, uh, that uh, Joe Robinette uh, Biden has been elected, uh, has racism been solved? Uh, the question is, has racism been solved now that Joe Biden has been elected? We, we've elected our first uh, multiracial uh, woman of color uh, to the vice presidency. And uh, I wonder if uh, we need to stop marching in the streets and now we can start uh, dancing in the streets and, and going back to brunch. Did Joe Biden solve racism by being elected today? This is a fine question as well. And what's uh, what's Alfie's? All right, my question is about um, the music of this of this day. Similar to David, it's about today's political situation. Uh, you know, seeing um, this inauguration party with um, with the um, the performances from J Lo singing thing, "This Is Your Land" and other things. Um, you know, and then the music appeared again in this really bizarre way. I don't know if you guys saw. I'm sure you saw when Trump was getting on this plane. Uh, to the soundtrack of My Way. Uh, so we had this kind of lib, the libs uh, attempting to give their soundtrack or the Democrats giving their soundtrack to today. And then we had Trump giving his soundtrack to today. And my question is, what soundtrack would we want uh, to be the, 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 the background music of today's events and why? All right. So the roundup of the questions is, uh, what, what is the, the cultural significance of watching Baywatch uh, today under lockdown? We're back in lockdown, I, I guess, in the States. We've never exactly left that ambiguous version you've had. Uh, the question of whether finally we've got Obama's vice president as president uh, and Kamala is uh, is vice president. Is racism, are you now post-racial in the States? And finally, um, like, hang on, what was the question part of it about the music of the... Um, well, what, the, the question is, we should, what, what do you think would be that if, if the, if the uh, uh, This Is Your Land is the Biden soundtrack and the liberal soundtrack and the My Way is the Trump soundtrack, what's the soundtrack mm -hmm. of the left? What's the soundtrack we would want to hear? On today's right, inauguration, right. I'm going to hand over to to Brandon to sort of 
like ponder <laughs> the virtues of these individual questions. Uh, anything jump out at you? Well, I like Baywatch question because I I watch a lot of of like really bad television, so that really speaks to me on a personal level. Okay, let's start there. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah, you watch. So you you've you've watched an episode of Baywatch recently? Is that what you're telling us? I mean, not recently. I'm aware of episodes of Baywatch. <laughs> I mean, they're all the same. If you've watched Baywatch, if you've seen one episode, you've seen them all, or eighty percent of them. Then they have the specials that aren't the same, but they're all the same. You actually know this in some detail, the, the relationship between the, the canonical series and the occasional specials. What happened in the last episode that you watched, Izzy? Well, uh, I think it was, one of, it was one of the filler episodes, but it was still fucking <laughs> fantastic, obviously. Uh, so uh, one of Hoth's old flames comes to town, um, and basically they hook up again. Um, but what, what transpires is that his old flame is also his one of his best pals, who is a lawyer, which is what I'll get onto shortly. Uh, they're all flame as well. So the better episode, in short, is uh, not too much crime, but uh, exploring this mutual old flame. So those so brings me on nicely to why I think Baywatch is fantastic. Um, as someone, alas, who's only recently uh, <laughs> come to encounter it, I did watch the film with Zac Efron and The Rock um, a, a year or so ago. But in terms of the actual original TV series, this is my first foray. Um, and yet, I mean, I probably sound very naive, which, which is true, but no one told me, right, that Baywatch is not just hot women, which is perfectly fine by me, by the way, but it's also lots of hot men, and also solving all these crimes, and then when people are dressed, which is not very often, they're wearing impeccable 80s and 90s attire. Um, but beyond this, so yeah, going back to the lawyer, so you have this character, right? Great, he's a lawyer, but the lawyer by day, but a lifeguard also by day, because he just he just fucking loves lifeguarding while also wanting to be a lawyer. He's in short the liberal dream because in the show, uh, you know, early on he takes uh, one of the main characters who you know, is coded as the street kid under his roof, and then also later it becomes apparent he's a political activist. And then there's another episode which is the one just before I watched. Um, there's this guy, this, this guy who um, is like basically a political Republican, um, has him for a kind of photo op, and then Craig the lawyer saying something like, "Only poor people who, only the poor people who, the only poor people who looks after are the kind with trust funds, i.e., he's a fake, he's a fraud." Um, and it's just you know, low key a great show when uh, January lockdown is fucking miserable, beautiful people on the beach, and there is low key socialist undertones, and. Pamela Anderson is not even in it yet. I mean, I can't wait till she fucking arrives. Um, I mean, her political activism to this day is pretty well known from French rights to broken capitalism. Um, she's very well known in that respect, stretching back to the 90s when uh, she began her work with Peter. So there we are. That's why, for me, they want to be on to know lockdown in January. I think it's a little, it's forbidden. You know, I think you're not supposed to like Baywatch. I think that, you know, people with, with quote unquote good taste are going to tell you that you shouldn't like watch Baywatch. Um, you should be watching the inauguration and not, not Baywatch. But I'll, I'll be honest with you. Uh, the thing about that's great about Baywatch is that you know that it's, despite being predictable, the, the there's always a good ending rather than what's going to happen in the Biden administration. Um, there's, you know, always, you know, some people meeting up. 
there's always a way to to make uh, you know scoundrels out of like teens who are like pulling pranks uh, on the beach. Uh, one of my favorite episodes of Baywatch is um, when uh, Court goes to uh, train the different um, uh, lifeguards at a, a local um, theme park, and the uh, the the lifeguards there resent them. And it's got a little bit of a camp feel that I like, and I, and I think that like we're really missing in the 2000s. Um, you know, just, I mean, if there's anything to say about 2020, it's, it's not because it's not fun because of COVID. It's not fun because of people, uh, people just refusing to have fun in 2020. People refusing to go to the beach and solve crimes. That's right. That's right. That's what life used to be about in America. I mean, it's, it's funny because (laughs) I, I, I I mean, I'm just trying to figure out what their jurisdiction is, you know, and I, I like that about that. Like, I think that's, that's great. Like they have they're like the antifa of beach you know like they're they're solving crimes they're doxing people crime happens within 100 miles of a beach bay watches you know has jurisdiction so you know that's basically everywhere in america you could be in the middle of the rocky mountains and there's sand somewhere so bay watches has a jurisdiction over you yeah that's right and and now they have drones i bet you know which is great But but they're cool drones that you can like videotape the beach show off you know look at sharks that kind of stuff I know the idea that it's not their actual job. That it's kind of like, you know, just a hobby. It's sort of this kind of dream of unalienated labor. That, (laughs) you know, being a lifeguard is simply fun. uh, And there's no friction whatsoever between, like, the duty to save people on the beach. There is also a lot of discussion, don't worry, James, about how poorly paid the lifeguards are. And there's a lot of um, county, i.e., like, the government-funded lifeguards versus the private club's lifeguard and and there's a lot of discourse that arises about how even though the private lifeguards are paid more they're essentially shitter at their jobs and kill more people and that's why it's important to have state-funded government lifeguards. Okay did that carry through into the Dwayne Johnson and (laughs) movie of it isn't there a Baywatch movie with like Zac Efron and, and The Rock or something? I did watch it, but I remember nothing. <laughs> it did end up in the morgue. I can't actually tell you anything about about film beyond that, but uh, yeah, maybe. So, Brandon, yeah. since you're not a Baywatch watcher, but you, I know that you, you have a very diverse uh, a media taste. So what's your, yeah, I know you don't feel guilt because you, you're a man. But uh, what's your not guilty pleasure? My not guilty pleasure, you mean? So shows that I like to watch that are people think are bad, or yeah. Well, I mean, I watch a lot of reality television shows, uh, but generally speaking, fictional shows that I watch that are just I don't know terrible. Um, watch, oh, I mean, I watch a lot of anime, <laughs> but generally speaking, you know, I think. I trend towards watching worse shows in the ninth, from the nineties and eighties and early two thousands than I do bad shows now. So just for a little bit of context, because the way things are bad now are way different and way more annoying than the way things used to be bad. Uh, So like that's kind of what makes Baywatch so much better in hindsight, because now everything is bad, like Marvel movies or like things written by Joss Whedon, as opposed to being bad, like, you know, you know, there was like a five-year period where every movie was like Independence Day. And like that seems silly now. At the time, it was like, oh, this sucks. But going back, it's like, wow, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. We used to blow up Astro. 
for the Nubian. Now, yeah, that, that that's really interesting because it, it's gotten really like micro. I think I think I mean like the. Y- you don't care about the politics of the people in, in those movies because you just like, you know, like I know the independence day guy, like the, the president, I don't know what his party was. I don't give a shit. Right. I, as you know, the fact <laughs> is he got in an F 16. He's like, I'm shooting these, these bastards. And like, that's the kind of stuff that you don't see anymore. That's um yeah. I mean, it kind of, yeah, like what Mark Fisher says about, um, you know, the classic sort of studies of postmodernism and neoliberalism, uh, were you know written in the in the 80s and early 90s, um, but in that time it was still kind of possible. You know, culture still had a living memory of when it had been different. So there was still this sort of slight kind of grit in the oyster. Whereas it's only in the 2000s and and our own kind of time that you really get into the situation where like you can't even imagine culture being different. I mean, the Star Wars movies are a good example. Everyone like rightly shits on the star wars prequels the 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 ones that george lucas made in the 90s and early 2000s these are ridiculous things um but then you compare them to the sort of like you know hyper efficient um disney produced kind of new ones and you think these are not enjoyable or good films but at least there's this sort of unpredictable weirdness to them in comparison to now where everything has been sort of so algorithmically kind of preordained and, and controlled. And that, like, is Independence Day good? Is Baywatch good? Well, no, but there's, there's a way in which the kind of logic of capital hasn't quite crept into like, absolutely every crevice. They're at least a bit weird. Oh, I was just going to say I agree because, you know, good and bad are objective. For me, a movie is only bad or media, generally speaking. The worst thing any piece of media can be, any piece of entertainment can be, first and boring. If it's boring, then I'll just never get deep enough into it to examine whatever I'm supposed to get from it. Like if your movie's just boring, that's way worse to me than being interesting in a bad way. And so, you know, we've gone to the age where algorithmically produced things can be fun. Like the new Spider-Man movies are fun and fine to watch. A lot of them, you know, are fun and fine to watch when they hit. Sometimes they miss due to whatever little tweaks they make. But, you know, that's few and far between. But I can't say I remember most of them. And ultimately, no. I, you know, people won't be talking about Iron Man 2 in 30, 40 years unless there is now Iron Man 17. You know, <laughs> they'll be still talking about RoboCop 2 because it's, you know, a kid, it's a kid drug dealer who's selling, uh, you know, who's selling uh, that red eye drug from Cowboy Bebop to people in the slums of Detroit in 1999. So yeah. I think that we've moved towards a more boring age of cinema because everything is, you know, it's made to appeal to the widest audience possible. And if it's not made to appeal to the widest audience possible, it's just made to win awards. And so you get, you know, things on wildly ends of the spectrum. Like everything's either a Marvel movie or uncut gem. Yeah. And you just yeah. go like, okay, well, what if I don't want something that sucks and I don't want to, you know, a quiz. Yeah. What if I just want to like yeah. watch a movie that's like, you know, yeah. mid range, but like inventive at least. Not that yeah, independent inventive, but you know, at least it's not no. Thor 7. No, I think like the, the late 90s, there was always great thriller movies. You know, my, my father is like sort of a curator of these things. He's always got some sort of like Michael Crichton style, like mystery. It's got, you know, some some uh, 
good looking redhead in them. You know, there's always like, you know, it's like the, the Mothman Chronicles from the 90s. It's a great movie. I could watch it over and over. And you know what? There's not many movies like that now, you know, and and that's I think I find that really interesting. You know, not, not everything has to be either Michael Bay or Greta Gerwig. You're, you're I'm seeing in our private chat, Congo exclamation mark. Oh, hell yes. <laughs> Brandon. Yes. I, I saw that as a um, like in primary school at a sleepover. Um, so uh, it's it's been a long time since I thought about those uh, apes with lasers. I, I just rewatched it. Oh my god! Should I watch it again? I just I would. Congo I would like two it. nights ago. Yeah, it's great. Of course, of course, you should because it's Congo. Because even if even though it has a twenty-two percent on Rotten Tomatoes, it's a movie about like yeah. super intelligent apes being killed with lasers. And yeah. so, like, that's where movies like that have their, you know, their hook forever because, you know, you yeah. can see the score, but then you read the synopsis and it's not like Iron Man fights villain du jour. It's like super intelligent yeah. apes with lasers hunt, you know, primatologists in the Kong yeah. or really Zaire in 1996. And it also has like mm-hmm. Curry in it. So you go, and oh, who doesn't I'll watch that. Academics, no, right? you can, it, it is less you investment, know. I think. <laughs> I mean, you, you want to hunt people I with mean, PhDs. Who... Exactly. And there are a lot of great thrillers from that era. I mean, I watched Romeo Must Die last night from like yeah. the trilogy oh. of DMX and uh, Jet Li, Warner Brothers connection movies like Exit Wounds and Romeo Must Die and Cradle to the Grave. And then the other one, Kiss, the Dra- Kiss of the Dragon. Yeah. Like those are great movies. There's a scene where like Jet Li punches someone in the head so hard his heart explodes and you see it. You see it. And it's like, you know, that was new back then. We didn't have X-ray vision. But and they showed like a sort of when you kick someone got kicked in the head, it would like show their skeleton sort of fragmenting as the pressure goes through the body. Yeah, it was it was actually a very um, visually interesting film. Yeah. Romeo must die. You know what? I'd love to be pitching a movie in the 90s, you know. I, I got this idea for a film. When you kick someone in the head in the film, you see their skeleton. No, you know what? It's funny. Here's another DMX, one. DMX was the greatest celebrity because when when Barack Obama had won the Democratic primary, he's like, somebody named Barack Obama is running for president. He, like he was he was dumbfounded. He didn't care. He wasn't interested. It was amazing. And I, I'll tell you what, celebrities should be more like that today. Have we got time to just get a little bit of this music question in? Like, what's uh, what would you know? What what would Bernie have been uh, having as his inauguration music, or what should he have had? Uh, what's uh, you know what what what's uh, to be interpreted from yeah. Trump's "My Way" uh, by the using yeah. the great socialist anthem, actually, uh, yeah. Woody Guthrie? Or or just what's the What's the music for the moment, really, from from a left perspective? The one you missed out was YMCA. Trump played. He's always playing YMCA. That's true. Yeah. I don't know if this is known in America. I mean, I know you play uh, Gary Glitter. Do 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 do. Hey, do do do. At uh, sports games, whereas he's one of our most uh, prolific pedophiles in a country that is known for its, you know, yeah. great production of, of pedophilia. Yeah, it's another uh, one export. You guys listen to that, which is kind of taboo here. Uh, but YMCA is, you know, this is a great kind of, uh, you know, gay club anthem. I mean, British British people were American, right? So presumably that's kind of well known. Well, yeah, but that's like a 90s meme song. And he's like a 90s meme kind of guy. Donald Trump, Trump you know, yeah. coasted on being a 90s meme to be prep to any rap song from the 90s. And like basically any movie from the 90s has him in it. 
yep. if it is in New York and they want to be super New York and they could get them. So like, yeah, he, like he's all about those kinds of memes. And cause that, that's just, you know, the world in which he was King. And I could see why he'd want to go back there. And also he has no tape. You know, that's the only song from the nine. He probably remembers. Uh, we're, lo we're losing a little bit of your connection, Brandon. If, uh, big, could become a big part of popular culture. If that explains the 80s, like, yeah. a look of anxiety. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, there's just an internet, uh, slight internet issue there with yours, Ben. So, I mean, where this question came from for me was I was watching the BBC News, um, which is, you know, the main news, the main liberal news in the, in the UK. And it was, it basically showed one second, it showed. Um, you know j-lo booming out this is your land which you know I, you know i was yeah like you james i was like oh bloody hell can't set a biden inauguration to that socialist song and then the, then the news basically cuts to trump getting on a plane with the soundtrack of my way and I, I you know i was sort of thinking well what this is like i'm watching a movie on bbc news which has got this yeah. kind of weird soundtrack and and the, yeah. you know what 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 would i what would i put to it you know as a as yeah. somebody who thinks this whole charade is nonsense you know uh you well, know i think tupac changes because you know this is a song that that's been applied to every film it's a cliched crap song but you know i'm team biggie obviously don't like tupac but um but uh you know a song that's been applied to everything which is supposed to be a change but which actually leaves everything precisely the same so if i was like um you know ceo of bbc news i would have um put that on in the background so that we can have a kind of ironic laugh at how yeah. we're, we're, we're looking at what we what has been sold to us has changed but is that actually is basically the same old <laughs> shit it's kind of automatically ironizing as soon as you set any song in a political context like the invitation is to read it cynically i mean the first trump campaign regularly used the stones you can't always get what you want so the president who as we were discussing with angie was offering like fulfillment of all your desire had playing you can't always get what you want uh someone i forget who someone pointed out on twitter that bill clinton had uh, leonard cohen's democracy as his uh yeah. inauguration song democracy is coming to the usa like this fantastic kind of uh statement from leonard cohen as if america doesn't have democracy and it's you still got to wait for it and, and that's playing for the clinton uh uh inauguration that, that mm. that's kind of incredible too i think hopefully we've got brandon back as well yeah i am right here hey. you uh can hear me now absolutely yeah. that's oh yeah so good. i i wanted to just ask brandon about this there was there's a song that was played at the inauguration today um called you get what you give by the new radicals it's actually quite a catchy song but apparently the song was played at the inauguration because uh bo biden used it as his, his his fighting cancer song now in a time where you have 300 400 000 americans who've died of covid we have people that i know dearly who've died, who've, who've gotten covid or died of covid um is you know making it about you as a president even though i mean a presidency is always about you i mean that's the that's this how it works right but is making this about you in in the inauguration a good thing or a bad thing oh is that aimed at me yeah uh, well i mean the new radicals need to change their name because they're more of like the gen x radicals which yeah. kind of explains the whole uh needing to get back together to do their set at his inaugurations yeah i mean joe biden, hmm? joe biden has struggled to humanize himself to people who 
are trying to vote for him or trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. And usually people intercede on his half to um, people intercede on his behalf to uh, have, you know, to tell you that you can't you can't trust what you heard him say to you. Um, but his one trick that he whips out all the time is to, you know, talk about his dead son, talk about his son with cancer, the experience that as a grieving father. And, you know, that's something that people have empathy for. I don't deny that was hard for him. And I think that's his way of trying to bridge the gap between himself and the people he's trying to uh, become the new president of and usher in a new age of anti or post or whatever racism he has in store for us. Uh, the problem is that the best way to show, you know, empathy to people who are sick is to give them health care. And so, like, you know, it's not about whether or not I believe Joe Biden cares about his kid or, you know, the sadness of losing somebody to an illness. You know, some of us have to experience that and don't have the entire world, you know, watching. So, you know, I think we need to ask the you know, people not, you know, get bogged down in Joe Biden's own personal experience, because that's what he wants. He wants to make not necessarily about himself, but to pretend like we're all in this together. You know, we're all fighting illness together and we're all losing people to viruses. And, you know, like, that's just not the case, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, absolutely. And I think that. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that but that's the whole that's that's not just a Biden problem, is it, uh, Brandon? I mean, it's. It's, this is a like a rhetoric that well, I mean it's, it plays out in the UK. I'm sure it's played out in past um, you know political moments in the US. I mean, this 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 whole idea is a class denial. It's the whole the whole failure to recognise that these are economic problems that there's a need for a kind of insurgent working class, or whatever. Because the, the we do not experience things as humans in the same way at all. Uh, you know, there's there's this the whole the whole Biden thing is this kind of humanism, isn't it? Where we just see each other as humans and forget all the class, race, gender differences, which, you know, fundamentally make our experiences of life completely incomparable. I agree. And even sometimes more than that, it's about selective empathy or cultivating a selective empathy. Because like I said, you know, we all lose people to diseases. You know, we've all lost people to illness in our lives. I, you know, imagine if you haven't, you know, quite lucky, but statistically you probably have or will. Um, the, issue with that is that we all don't have the ability to have our sadness, our lost platform in a way that demands people engage with it, uh, you know, that has an implication on how the world views them, like more, their morality. If I talk crap about Joe Biden losing his son, people would, you know, rightfully or wrongfully think I'm a bad person. I don't necessarily care. But the reality is we all don't have the luxury of having that, you know, our suffering spotlighted. And so Joe Biden, you know, and a lot of this happens with, you know, analogous cases unrelated to people's illness, Joe Biden is just allowed to make that story about him, co-opt that story, and pretend like, you know, his engagement with illness of his son is the same as everybody of different races, of different classes, and he just becomes a litmus test. And that's just a faux solidarity that obscures the fact that if you were to platform anybody else uh, who had a person um, who had a person they love die of illness in America, chances are they would be left with medical debt. But that story we can't tell. So, you know, they're not the litmus test for empathy. And so Joe Biden is, because Joe Biden is, you know, the president. Is a great example of that sort of like ironic meaning of the, the song coming through. We're supposed to hear this as you just as you explain. I didn't actually know that that was the backstory of the song, but we're supposed to hear this and think, oh yeah, Joe, he's gone through this tough time, this humanizes him, I identify with him. But the actual kind of statement of the song is actually quite brutal. Um, 
you know, you only get what you get. You're only getting this two thousand dollar <laughs> check or whatever, you know, on the basis Minus of the six hundred dollars already appropriated. You you can't yeah. forget that part. Yeah, that at a time of like important. state ultimate state cheapness. Oh, we go we gave you six hundred already, didn't yeah. we? So uh, um, it, it's yeah. Um, it, uh, you compare that to Trump's. You can't always get what you want. Well, some his promise is sometimes you're going to get everything you want. Sometimes you're not going to get anything you want. Whereas the Biden kind of regime is this contractual thing where you have to put in if you're going to expect anything in return during a pandemic. You got to get what you give. Work. You got to get you yeah. get. We only get what you give. That's that's the Biden uh, rhetoric. It's, it's like a more a, blunt version. Thatchery, Thatchery uh, thing to say. It's a, you, you know, it's a conservative thing. You put in, you get out. It's a very blunt version of you know, ask not what America can do for you, but you what you can do for America. But Absolutely. I think you know, but I mean, I think that you know, you're right in the sense that the Democrat central message is that there is value inherently in compromise. There's value inherently in getting what you deserve. There's inherent value in means testing. And that, you know, that's something that we should strive towards, that we should all be getting what we, quote unquote, deserve from the government, from our system, from whatever. I think that's silly because you can't because you can't guarantee that everyone gets what they, they will, quote unquote, deserve under a neoliberal definition. The fact that you can't guarantee that is used as the justification for not giving anyone anything. Because, you know, it's always about what people deserve. So, you know, just the inherent logic of, well, once you'll get into the system, what you, you'll get from the system, what you put into it is just, you know, a shell game. Because then when you don't get it, it can also be turned back on you and say, well, that's because you didn't really put anything in. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's the pure statement of meritocracy. Uh, and actually, you know, inevitably, we, we think back to Obama getting in, uh, uh, you know, today. Um, when Obama appointed Larry Summers, the, the Clintonite uh, economist, he said that if we've got inequality today, it's because people are, more people are being treated as they deserve to be treated. Uh, uh, which, you know, <laughs> is an absolutely obscene statement. But how does that differ from you only get what you give? Well, I mean, one way it's phrased that it sounds better, right? Because one way it sounds like, you know, if you work hard, you'll get an A. And the, but what it really means is that, like, well, if there are some mitigating factors that mean that you can't work hard, you're still going to get that F. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Because I mean, it won't be fair the person who worked hard to get you know who to get that a that you didn't you know get the same answers yeah no, i know and i think that is very much the that's very much the situation over here and it, it's um yeah it's, it's fascinating to think about like something like that with the new radicals i mean i i don't know does anyone know the history of that band but i'm gonna i'm gonna say that they're a band from uh about about that they were probably big in about like 2000 or 97 or something like that like just a little after oasis or something in the U they're an english band aren't they or are they welsh um but uh, uh, they're, UK, they're a uk thing and and they they really they 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 i don't know i'm, I'm i don't like accuse them of having the wrong the wrong music but my point i, I guess my point is that like popular culture like like that like does kind of urgently reflect um, 1998. So this is, you know, if if uh, 1997 was was Blair getting in and uh, De Ream, things can only get better. Yeah. 1998 is you, you only get what you give. This is this was so, my point, and I, I knew I was intuitively right about the fucking date of the new radicals because that rhetoric that 
Brandon describes, you know, like you, you know, exactly the thing. You you put your work in, you get an A. Forget about your actual limitations, your class, your your situation, whatever. Then that's exactly where they come from. That is a a post Blair uh, band, and that that those lyrics are um, very much of that moment. And and yeah, yeah, that's interesting to me. That's interesting. I mean, the late 90s, the, you know, the shift in the UK to Blair, the shift in America to Clinton represented just an overall shift in the, both the rhetoric and, you know, the general ideology of those like center left, pardon me, center left, left parties to neoliberalism in a more formal way, right? So we see uh, in the UK and we see in the US people, the, the Democrats, uh, the Blairites, they switch from talking about uh, large-scale structural change, big social projects, uh, uplifting everybody through comprehensive social programs towards, you know, the language of technocracy, of meritocracy, of being able to carve out the exact right slice of the pie for everybody, along with this sort of new economy around, like, you know, new symbolic economy, rather, around, like, moral, morality and intelligence based on the acknowledgement of a few you know, social indicators of morality intelligence. You know, that's where you get the, I believe science, I believe in racism, I believe women. And, you know, it just never, which is all fine and good, but, you know, when they are allowed in a two-party system or a party, and at least in America, there's a two-party system, to be only contrasted with people who don't believe that, they're just never called upon to ever prove what, you know, prove materially what that means. So we've just seen this overall shift from the party, you know, proving their legitimacy to the voters through like, hey, we're going to put more money in your pocket. Uh, we're going to, you're going to see the impact of our presidency uh, when you go to pay your children's health medical bills, whatever, and they don't exist. Uh, and towards like, well, you know, when you go into, when you look at the television, you'll see a lot more black billionaires. And won't you just feel so great, you know, when you're looking at your bills on your table that they're <laughs> billionaires on television. The, um, the, I'm just thinking about Trump's choice of Sinatra. I, I distinctly remember uh, after Trump's inauguration, um, so he, he finishes with My Way. He, 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 was, he danced with Melania to Mac the Knife. For Sinatra, <laughs> and Mac the Knife, which was in its no, way it's a, not a Sinatra tune. It's not a Sinatra tune. It's no, a, no. it's a, a Billy. Uh, what is that? Like, back to, because I, I love, I love this. Bobby one. Darren sang it. Bobby Darren, yes, yes. But you know what? It's it's actually another song with a socialist um, origin, just okay. like "This Land Is Is Your Land" by Woody Guthrie. Yeah. Uh, Mac the Knife is originally from the Thruppany Opera by uh, Bertolt Brecht. Uh, so it's it's a it's a revolutionary Marxist. It's a song from a, a revolutionary Marxist musical, uh, which by the you know by the sixties uh, gets you know turned into a a, a, sta a, a crooner standard and wow. uh, Sinatra's version. So it loses that, I guess, critique. So it's a, it's it's originally a critique of. Um, uh, a, a oh. kind of banker oligarch figure. Yeah. Then by the sixties, it's a sort of grudging madman Don Draper admiration for yeah. such a guy. And then Trump sort of uses it as a kind of, I guess it was a kind of trolling kind of thing. Like here's yeah. his, his uh, Trump uh, dancing to um, the shark bites with his teeth, dear. Um, it, it, it is a kind of gesture of yeah the. The, the the great criminal has won, <laughs> and then he ends on ends on my way. Uh, 
uh, this like no interest whatsoever in um, kind of invoking any sort of modernity or or promise or optimism. It's solely this kind of uh, boomer individualism. Uh, that's that, amazing. That, 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 that now, now I feel better about singing uh, singing at uh, karaoke all those years, uh, which you know is a hell of a karaoke song. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I just, I mean, I just feel like they picked a lot of these songs based on what they think will sound good over that classic, you know, montage of images of America with the flag waving and yeah. some like kids playing in the suburbs and the, yeah. the grain and some corn, and, like a farmer, yeah. and a tractor, and you know. At a certain point, centrists don't really have much culture, at least musically mm -hmm. speaking, because all the best music comes from like pain. And so, yeah. you know, whether you're talking about center right people like Trump or center left people like Biden, you know, a lot of their favorite stuff is critiques of them. You know, yeah. we know Paul Ryan loves Rage Against the Machine, doesn't he, or something? Yeah. Or, yeah. And it's just like, you know, it's ironic because you are the machine that they are raging against, but they're only engaging with it at the you know the most surface level yeah no i think that that's absolutely true and i and i think that's interesting I, you know i think it's like um there's something there's a musical taste where people actually want to be domed a little bit by their music and you know they, they can you know be it's they can you know be experiencing like oh this is critical of my life you know this is rebellious but really it's like you know you can turn the the iphone off you know I mean, some of us can't, but, you know, it, it, people can, you know, they can press pause. And uh, I think it's like a little bit of escapism. It's like in Washington, D.C., there's there are tons of people who work at think tanks, centrist think tanks, things like that, uh, who uh, who listen to punk music. And they really yeah, like that's really in, um, minor threat. Yeah, my experience of that is in um, uh, the, the movie version of The Thick of It's in the loop, yeah. where yeah. the Washington like, you know, special advisors or go to um, hard punk like gigs and and just yeah. sort of let off steam in this kind of intense experience. I just so watched that movie again actually the other day. <laughs> yeah, in the loop. Yeah, yeah. I need to watch that again because uh, that particularly that that scene when I saw that um, I had uh, 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 you know uh, I worked very closely with with someone who was a DC punk guy was friends with Henry Rollins but you know still you know, uh, push neoliberal policies as, as, during his day job. But, you know, he had the side cut. He had, he had a skateboard and, and that's how it was. And it was, it was pretty shocking, actually. I mean, no one thinks of themselves as selling out. They just think of themselves as, you know, uh, making some adjustments for the moment, you know, making some compromises. And then, yeah. you know, one day you're the machine and you're raging against yourself. <laughs> yourself. <laughs> well, then you have a mortgage. Yeah, right, exactly. As for the left, I think, like, when we're winning, when we're in a kind of upward direction, um, the right music comes to us. And I think of Bernie with his arm around Cardi B. I think of Corbyn, uh, the fact that like all of the UK's grime artists will flock to him around 2017. When Corbyn first got in and like didn't have a clue what he was doing because he was just this old uh, dandruff lefty who'd never been in charge of anything and, and was just sort of treading water like his kind of idea of like how to connect with pop culture was he did this press conference with ub40 you know the the old 80s like um re reggae band yeah. and if if you're trying to sort of shed the image that you're a sort of 70s 80s throwback to a kind of forgotten old left maybe don't go on stage with ub40 but then as soon as he was winning as soon as we were kind of turning the corner 
like the most innovative uh, UK music was suddenly around him. And I don't know if that really happened with Bernie. I, I guess the main thing I'm thinking is um, like Jack White played at one of his rallies, but he covered Bob Dylan. And don't get yeah. me wrong, I love Jack White and I love Bob yeah. Dylan, but he covered, um, Jack White covered Bob Dylan's License to Kill. Like, so he's going to the 80s Bob Dylan, which is not usually a good idea. Uh, and also singing, I guess the po Jack White's point was Trump is the is the the awful kind of figure that's invoked in Bob Dylan's song, and I, I feel like that was you know it, I, I liked it at the time, but maybe that was a sort of um, harbinger of, uh, of of subsequent failure that you, you know if if you want your left to succeed, it shouldn't be uh, you know invoking a boomer artist singing in the 1980s. There's a great song that I like to think about when I think about Bernie being on the cutting edge of uh, American music called uh, Bernie Sanders by Ugly God. Um, okay. You know, it's a there's a video online you can watch. Uh, you can't really find it on any of the Spotify channels because, you know, obviously it's uh wasn't looking for, um, uh, you know, YouTube. You can find it on YouTube. That's what I meant. Uh, but, you know, you can't find it on any of the normal Spotify, iTunes channels. So really underground stuff. So, no, I would say check it out if you're looking for edgy Bernie music. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think, you know, that's the, that's the kind of stuff that really matters. I mean, you know, having Bruce Springsteen play for another Democrat. I mean, just come on. I mean, you know, yeah. I, it's uh, he's you know, I, I like the boss just like the, the next guy. But, you know, it's it's like it's enough of this. Um, the, the one thing that the musical uh, event of the, that I was really shocked by is that there was actually um, a, a UK based uh rapper who played at uh it was 51 savage i believe who was actually deported or not allowed back into the country under obama who then played at the inauguration and i thought like if is there a better encapsulation of the future biden administration than that yeah <laughs> yeah agreed well listen brandon it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on uh everyone should follow brandon uh, pretty bad lefty and the discourse podcast uh, which I think is there. it's been absolutely awesome hopefully we can have you back on brandon uh, in future for a, a big session of course thanks for having me it was a wonderful meeting you all have a great night lovely thanks man. Brandon. the leader of the swanetariat there he goes <laughs> uh, and and it's also an absolute pleasure to welcome sophie uh hello sophie hopefully you're you're getting in uh sophie is a toronto-based musician podcaster you've probably seen her online at internet daughter and you can see her getting ready to come on here with us now uh friend of david's welcome thanks for joining us david tell us about sophie and what she does so so one thing i would say about sophie is sophie sophie's had many incarnations in, in her sort of media career she's a dj she's famous for that she's a podcaster she's famous for that She's she's just overall uh, uh, cheeky online, which people like. And, um, you know, uh, she has a podcast. Can you tell me a little bit about the podcast now you're getting ready, uh, uh, Sophie? Yeah, I was running away from my partner who <laughs> kind of on the house. Anyways. <laughs> uh, a podcast? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a podcast that I do with two of my homies who are also um, in, like, the arts world in Toronto. Um musicians as well djs and um we sort of started just as like kind of just a thing to do last year kind of fucking around and uh we sort of do um like cultural commentary on toronto stuff and it's kind of just like three friends talking shit and we um 
talk about like left politics stuff and just kind of stupid things that are going on on the internet. We've kind of unfortunately been called by some people the Canadian Town Chapo hybrid. <laughs> I don't think they're like as extreme as either one. Yeah. On either and also, end. I think I think it's just like Toronto. I think that there's a flavor there that people that that don't get all the time. You know, like it's like. You know, Toronto's one of the best food cities in the world, but people don't necessarily know that about it. You know, they you know they think it's Canadian, it's poutine, but I I, I think what your podcast does is actually bring some of that to people outside of the area, uh, because when you're in Toronto, it's it's actually one of the cooler places around. Can I hear a bit about the food? Because um, I'm quite interested in like the food. Well, you did you just use the phrase like food capital of the world or something? Like, I I, I was I was having. And I, I don't know. I mean, that's really interesting to me because I, I, ba- I love eating, cooking yeah. and eating, as people know. You can see some of my recipes <laughs> on the popular show's uh, own, uh, yeah. own YouTube channel. But like I, I thought it was, this was, for me, this is a battle between Hong Kong and Singapore. And I've never been to Toronto. So tell me a bit about the food you can you can have over there. It kind of reminds me of London, England, in a way, because it's just got sort of that like, I don't know, like colonial thing, I guess. But um, there's just so many different groups of people and ethnicities and it's really really cool like we have like a little Eritrea we have little Korea we just have everything like Indian food uh, I guess they're Japanese food but lots of Chinese food yeah. like you anything you want to get you will find a pocket of the city with people who are of that ethnicity cooking their food in like pretty yeah. OG way so it's really neat yeah it's, it's funny um Canada let in more refugees last year than they had let in in the history of, of, of Canada so it just gives you an understanding that when you have this very uh, sort of open immigration policy and you have people coming in from all over, you don't just have the first wave of, of sort of Indian cuisine. You have small pockets of specialized Indian cuisines. You have special, you, you just have Korean food, you have rural Korean food, you have city Korean food, you know, those types of things that, that um, you don't see sort of like leveled out in places like New York where you have like one kind of Chinese food. You know, I, I, I think... Um, People often say New York is the best food, the best place to eat in the world, and I, I think at least in North America, I think that I would, I would say Toronto's there. And um, you know, I, I'm not in Toronto right now, and I do miss it uh, because I'm a little bit of a COVID refugee. But um, you know, one thing I think about pretty regularly is the inability to walk to five or six good restaurants. Yeah, I'm in BC right now. I've been in Whistler since early December, and it's pretty funny, like getting ramen at Samurai Bowl in Whistler, and just looking at it, and you're like, "Why is there kimchi in this?" <laughs> yeah. like, there's a lot of food I miss uh, yeah. in Toronto. It's great. I don't know. It's one thing that's struck me as funny is that Canada doesn't have a single Michelin-starred restaurant, and I. I don't. I've read a couple articles, but nothing was like super clear. Everyone's just sort of speculative. I can tell you, we've, we've had one listener in Canada in the last uh, in the last sort of three months of doing this. So <laughs> I hope that listener is tuned in tonight. <laughs> Otherwise, it's all dead time. <laughs> Let's uh, play popular questions, guys, for one last time tonight with Sophie. Thank you for joining us, Sophie. Well, we, we're doing the jingle. Okay. What is the popular question? Why do you ask such popular questions? What is the popular question of the week? What is the second popular question of the week? All right. So we're going to ask a question, Sophie. You're going to tell us which one you want to talk about. Uh, okay. I want to hear David's question first this time. I, given, and this is, goes back to our previous discussion, um, 
given that the inauguration of uh, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden happened today, uh, I had asked previously in my previous question, was racism solved? We did not get to answer that question, but I'm not going to ask it again. But my, my question is, why are liberals so horny for old politicians? And why are liberals so horny for old politicians? If you remember um, Beto O'Rourke, there was the, the famous tweet where the, the person said, uh, he's making my toes curl up. Uh, all these sort of uh, explorations of sexuality in, in sort of a, a tweet form, uh, even when they were talking about Stacey Abrams and people talking about having polyamorous relationships with Stacey Abrams of all people uh, because of Georgia's electoral win. Um, why are liberals so horny? Okay, that's question number one. Izzy, what is your popular second popular question of the week? They watch covered my most pressing popular questions, but mm -hmm. very important. Following the news this week that um, free fast broadband has been offered in the UK support homeschooling in certain certain locations, uh, I'm bringing back is broadband communism back in fashion? It never goes out of style. I will tell you why. Should broadband be provided by the state? As exactly. that much. Uh, okay, good question. And Alfie, what's your question of the week? Um, my popular question for this round is, um, what is the most evil company in the world? And I've been thinking about um, how companies had these evil reputations in the past. I remember from my youth when Shell, like, blew some people up in Africa or something, and they were the evil company. And then there was a scandal around Nike, and then... Uh, you know, they were they were the really bad ones because they were employing Filipinos in sweatshops. Um, but now we've got this kind of hyper capitalism, uh, this kind of woke capitalism where even Nike and Shell are celebrating diversity and um, Black Lives Matter and other things on their ad campaigns. And we, we got suspicious of Facebook and Google for a while, but that seems to have died down. So, you know, my question is, what is the most evil company in the world right now? Okay, so there's your choices. Um, liberal horniness, uh, the question of um, whether the internet should be a human right, and the question of capitalism and evil. Hmm. I'm torn between the internet and capitalism evil. I mean, I also, it's not a real game show. You're not going to win anything if you choose one of the No, same. I know that. We usually just um, sort of meander among the questions. So. What do you mean it's not a real game show? Yeah, there's stakes I, here. There are moral stakes. I'm going to go funny. with I'm going to go with Elfie's question, but I also think it's so funny that British people say Nike. <laughs> like, that's not how you say it that's just simply not how it's pronounced british people well, are always just trying to say words all different like aluminium yeah okay well it's like a d track pants you know let, let me say that you know i remember i just, I just think it, it was a weird thing that came to mind really. i remember when starbucks was the uh the big old bogeyman of corporations yeah. Uh, I no, remember when yeah. Nike was. I remember when. The cycle doesn't Cal happen. So, so what's the bogey? We got the bogeyman of presidents, but what, what's the bogeyman of corporations now? Or have we just become so uh, used to we're this capitalism that we 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 you know, yeah we can't even we can't even be outraged at corporations anymore because we I, we we are so absorbed in its world we can't even do that. 
I feel like it's not one company necessarily that's singled out now. I think like everyone just hates corporations as on like on the whole at this point. And like I like you were saying before, there was definitely like I recently watched that. I don't know if it's gotten criticism or whatever, but that documentary on Netflix, uh, The Social Dilemma. Mm. And like mm. it was all kinds of things I already knew, but watching it again, I it kind of reinvigorated my like, oh god, like big data is actually fucking terrifying at this point, especially with like politics and the way it's divided people, um, fake news and all this like coronavirus shit. So I don't know. I'm kind of I'm mad at tech again. I think personally, I, I go with that. I, I think, I, and I, I guess my question was actually coming from me. I agree with you, and that's what I was meaning. I think that what's happened over the last years of neoliberal capitalism is that. We've, we've become so used to complaining about companies like whether it's McDonald's or Shell or Starbucks that we suddenly feel like complaining about Facebook isn't a big problem. But actually, it's a significantly more dangerous and damaging thing that we're facing. Yeah. It's getting absorbed in the liberal imaginary as just yet another corporation that we complain about but move on from. Yeah, and I was actually like, as I was watching it, I was thinking like, am I a victim of these algorithms at this point? Like, is it slowly shifting me in particular directions? And I started to feel like I was crazy. And I'm like, no, 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 these are my opinions. And then I'm like, but yeah. are they? Yeah, Because it was talking not, about, but what well, it was saying you... how it doesn't necessarily show you things that you like, it shows you things it thinks you will like. And it starts to push those things on you to like slowly, incrementally change your behavior and your beliefs to a point where you're like it's almost like you think that you did that yourself and so yeah. i was like oh ah. so, so i mean that is that is exactly what it is i mean let me let me tell you a quick um i, I don't interrupt my co-host but at the same time i, I yeah. have to like come on on that sophie I, I i find that incredibly scary as well i find that a really scary prospect and i um you know when i was like um working in china about smart cities and stuff I went, I like once gave a talk in a city called Hangzhou in East China. And um, I was like slagging off WeChat. I was basically saying WeChat is Google. It controls your mind through, you know, whatever. And these people approached me at the end of the chat. And I, I basically thought I'm going to be arrested here or something, you know, because these guys were from Alibaba, you know, Jack Ma's company, which happens mm. to be situated. in Hangzhou. So these guys from Alibaba came up and said, listen, can we have a word? And I thought, oh, fucking hell, they're going to sort of block me from coming into China or something. And they said, oh, listen, you hate WeChat. You hate WeChat. You hate Tencent, the company owns WeChat. And I said, yeah, yeah, I do. And they said, we're from Alibaba. So I thought, oh, shit. And then they said, why don't you come with us on a special tour of our Alibaba? All right. I thought, OK, then. I said, listen, guys, I hate you as well. I hate Tencent and I hate you. You're the same. You're evil. And they said, don't worry about that. Come with us. They, they took me on this <laughs> massive tour. This, they didn't give a shit about that. They thought, so I went on this tour of this place. I went in a self-driving car with a drone following me. It was bloody amazing. And then I was asking this guy, what's the most impressive bit of technology you got? And he showed me this car, part of his car with his little panel in the front. And he said that this car knows when you're hungry and it knows what you might like to eat. And it knows it five minutes before you know you want that. So basically, this car is designed to this like like smart device that's like synced to your phone. It's designed to like say on a Tuesday afternoon you fancy sushi at five o'clock, uh, and then you don't really realize that you fancy sushi at five o'clock on a Tuesday, but the car realizes. And then at four fifty-five, the car says to you, "Listen, listen, you fancy sushi, and this where you should go to get it, and I'm going to drive you there." And then I asked the guy, why? What the fuck is in, why are you doing that? Because like I thought they would say, this car is fast, or it is safe, or it drives itself. But they didn't. They said that. Anyway, he said, basically, we're redirecting people from uh, places which take cash 
and directing them instead to places which use Alipay. That's so, so grim. Yeah. yeah. So basically, exactly what you said, Sophie. They, they are. You think you want it, and you think you're going after what you want, but actually, Alibaba has literally told you what to want, when to want it, and how to go about getting it <laughs> to, to gain money over, you know, local companies for their. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, like, what's grim about that is it's like I know, especially in Asia, like a lot of smaller businesses are cash only. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I hate using cash in North America. And every time I go to Asia, I kind of lament over that fact that I have to use a lot of cash. But uh, I guess, yeah, like I noticed in Hong Kong, especially that people use their bus passes and WeChat to pay for things. And I was always the annoying, like, white person paying in, like, cash at the 7 Eleven. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. I mean, in, uh, I don't know how it is in the UK, but here I use my phone for everything. I, I, I haven't seen my, you know, I haven't seen my physical cards in quite some time. And, and now I'm finding myself only going to the places where I can use my phone, um, you know, which is, which is uh, kind of, kind of limiting. Um, and I, I, I just, this minor convenience is actually really dictating where, where, what I do with my life. See, I, uh, this is, I agree with this, that, that um, I, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure anyone's quite saying this, but that show, that uh, documentary that, uh, with Shoshana Zuboff, she's the most, she's the, the extraordinary, like hair and everything, um, woman in, in the, the social dilemma, right? The, the, yeah. The um, I, I don't know, the, the kind of argument there that like what's sinister here is that now the algorithm knows us like so well, can predict everything we want, controls everything we want. Um, I feel like this is a bit like that South Park episode about 9-11 truth conspiracies, where it turns out that the the real conspiracy is the conspiracy theory. Like the Bush administration had made everyone think that Bush did 9-11 so that everyone would think, Jesus Christ, this guy is a genius and has like created this really dangerous thing. Whereas actually, you know, Bush was clueless and hadn't done any such thing. Whatever the, the, the virtues of the South Park episode are, and maybe Bush did do 9-11, I, I think it does apply to uh, this kind of digital uh, uh, capitalism that we we think that the algorithm is controlling all of our desires. And a show like uh, The Social Dilemma promotes that, a book like Shoshana Zuboff's promotes that. But actually, like what the the effect of the algorithm on our lives and identities is much more erratic and weird and indulgent and and, and unpredictable um and it, it's almost like the illusion that we're now being controlled by these platforms is the really uh powerful thing that's why i sort of rejected the um sort of standard centrist interpretation of Trump and Brexit, that everyone was brainwashed on Facebook and that's why they voted for these things. Mm-hmm. I, I have no doubt that like the weird Facebook groups and so on um, ha- has a kind of effect on people and on their lives and on their desires and politics. But I don't think that the algorithm can control us in the way that like we're expected to believe both by Silicon Valley itself and by its critics like, like Zuboff. I think mm-hmm. that actually like this is a much more standard kind of form of capitalism where they just want to keep you in the store facebook wants to keep you on facebook twitter wants to keep you on twitter and it's not that they like know how to control your actions off these platforms it's just that they want to keep you like indulged and fascinated by some weird spectacle that's going on on, on these platforms 
Yeah, I, I don't think it controls my life. Like, I think that if you have sort of an understanding of how this all works, is you kind of look at it and you're like, oh, that's funny. It's trying to get me to buy this a new phone because I cracked my screen and I Googled it. Like, when you're aware of it, it doesn't have as much power, I think. But I think it can for certain people. Like, for instance, I got an ad for a chair about a chair that lets you sit on your knees and sit cross-legged. And that's how I always sit. And it's like, woo, spooky. But then when I consider that I was also Googling hip flexor and QL pain, it yeah. all comes together. And I'm like, oh, it's just putting together things that I've Googled. It's not actually that smart. Yeah. And also when you, buy that the chair, dogs. when you buy that chair, they're going to keep advertising like different chairs to you afterwards. Yeah. Right? So yeah. that's when the dumbness of the algorithm kind of suddenly reveals yeah. Yeah, then I also catch myself buying things. Like if I know like Instagram fucking works on me. Like I'm I follow so many brands and I don't always buy things, but I'll sometimes I'll buy something and I'm like, they got me. I did it. They did it. But um I don't know. I think you're giving yourselves too much credit here. Um I, I think the algorithm is stupid as fuck, but you're even stupider. Uh, okay. So, you know, obviously, if you look at the YouTube suggestion of what you should listen to next, you know, it's as stupid as fuck, you know, and that's supposed that's to be one of the... Oh, yeah, I'll go along with it. Yeah, exactly. But, but, no. but um, well, it's not just that you'll go along with it. It's more that, like, that, that, that's not really how it's working. It, when, we, when people say that, like, you know, it's, it's influencing your, your way of thinking, it's not it's sort of completely perfect system, which is, um, you know, predicting exactly what you would like uniquely. It's more that it's it's un it's uniforming. It's making it normal. It's it's un it's offering you things which it, which it offers loads of other people. Uh, so it has the process of sort of normalizing people's desire. It, it's not it's not like it knows you better than you know yourself. That's all nonsense. Yeah. But it knows you sufficiently well to to drag yeah. you in line with what's normal, what's desirable in a broader sense, and that's yeah. even more scary in some ways. I think I think when you think about the I, I bring this back to politics, Elizabeth Warren's campaign, Elizabeth Warren's campaign was like advertised in such a way that it felt like if you were like sort of an upwardly mobile person with, with who, who thinks they have good taste, like the colors were just that it's like it's an ad where you're scrolling through your Facebook and you're like, this could be for a mattress. This could be for a cafe. This could be for a hip flexor chair. Right. But, you know, that this is for someone who's sophisticated and, you know, you don't have a lot of room. But, you know, you could fit this in, right? You can fit this in your little apartment. And it felt like living in one of those pods in downtown Toronto. It's like, you're like, this is engineered to be adequate enough for me, but not something I actually need or want. And, like, I feel like the internet has gotten us there with that, Elfie. It's like, it's normalizing all birds. You know, all birds, it's these shoes. They're, like, kind of yeah, like yeah. heads. They're kind yeah. of like heads. They're not really that comfortable. They're not really that fashionable. But everybody had them for a minute. Like, they just all of a sudden, all your friends had them. And they're, like, they're like algorithmically designed shoes. And I feel like that we're all wearing algorithmically designed shoes now. I think also there's too much of a focus in some ways on, on the algorithm and not enough about you know, where the data in question in relation to the algorithm is stored. So in if, if going back to James's example, you know, the, the kind of the liberals who um, focused a lot about how oh, um, this, this algorithm meant that Brexit happened, for example. Um, in the UK, like so it's estimated that um, at least two thirds, if not more, of of the specifically UK government data, i.e. all public sector data, is tied up with Amazon Web Services. So 
US hyperscaler. So that means that you, most of the most of Britain's uh, citizens, their prison records, their patient records are hosted um, by, you know, by Bezos. <laughs> um, and in terms of what that means, it's sort of, you know, it means Amazon can use that data to create, you know, new, new insights, new industries, and um, all sorts of opportunities from there, like um, that serve billionaires. And so it is, I think that is, that's an area that's overlooked in when we're talking about algorithms. And I think there's a think tank who say it's something like 92% of the Western world's data is all hosted in the US. And so we, do, we need to think more about what that means from a citizen. Mm. I, I think I think I, I agree with that. I think what I don't know. I, I guess what I'm interested in there is that, like, you know, I get I get Comran's point here, um, one of our regulars, um, that it's hilarious that, you know, people think big data did Trump and Brexit and things like that. Um, and, you know, I, I, I do agree with Comran fully. But at the same time, I think that. Um, I, I get the liberal confusion saying, oh, I'm desperate to believe that some kind of weird company like Cambridge Analytica was behind Trump or Brexit because humanity is too good to do that itself. You know, so the liberals are desperate to believe that it will be some sort of untoward force from the digital sphere that they're scared of anyway. But I, so I get the point. But at the same time, like it, is true that the right uh, understood how to use media and discourse. And that's that's the thing that uh, Angie was saying with us earlier about memes. You know, it is true that the right learned how to use media, distribute images, work on libidinal uh, manipulation of people. And, and that's even more scary for the liberals to confront. You know, so it's not it's not Cambridge Analytica, but but there is a problem with the way that the left and the liberals deal with media. I, I agree. That makes sense. I think... But well, for me, the, the, what we need, what needs to be done is the the, the, the liberal types um, and you know the actual left need to be holding the government to account more in terms of the the data itself, like the infrastructure and where it's stored, because other, like otherwise it's just you can't just because it makes yeah the right as I said like have they are better at at the memes for example and so. In order to combat that, you can't just but you can't just overlook where the where that data is stored. You need to, for example, um, and it's the same with kind of it's similar um, kind of talking points with uh, with UK broadband. Um, you need to basically make that uh, open up access um, to that data or or in infrastructure in the UK um, and not kind of outsource all of that. Similarly to the, to the NHS and private contracts there, for example not outsource that to these US hyperscalers, you need to um, keep that in the UK but, and open that up in terms of the tenders um, and not privatise it, but that is not something that's being discussed. Yeah. Yeah, they've got it all, haven't they, over COVID? <laughs> yeah, I feel a little bit blackpilled about it at this point. Like my right. partner asked me the other day, aren't you worried about having all these apps and the data and everything? And I was like, it's too late. Like, it's too late. Like, I feel like they have everything about me in storage somewhere. Every single thing about me, honestly. Like, I I just feel like I've, yeah, I don't know. I just, I'm not afraid any of them having my data because they know they already have it. So I just kind of do whatever on the internet at this point. I agree you with know, that. I have exactly that view. You know, it's funny this happened. I, I, I took a couple of days off Twitter. And as you all know, I have a Twitter addiction. Um, and the funny, <laughs> the funny thing is... Um, is that I actually, when I came back to my timeline, 
It was actually things I wanted to see. This was really interesting is that by not going on, it was actually the people I knew and saw. And, um, you know, that's what I reached out to you because I was like, oh, this is like someone I actually liked to see their posts. And it was funny because by taking that time off, the algorithm had to like sort of cleanse itself. By, I deactivated for a couple of days. And mm. when I came back, it was like, oh, this is actually weighted in a way that I want. And I'm really wondering how that happened or why that happened. Because uh, I, I recommend doing it because it's, it's you know, Twitter's actually really exciting. Maybe it, it understood that I was just so fed up with it that, I, that they couldn't just throw garbage at me anymore. I feel like Twitter purposely shows me the most absurd, like, mm -hmm. in poll takes imaginable. Because I constantly yeah. have people saying, how do you find these things? And I'm like, I don't follow these people. <laughs> it pops yeah. up on my timeline yeah. and it's like, sea shanties yeah. are racist or something like yeah. that. Or, like, it just, that's not even that out there, but, like, the most out there thing. Yeah. Like, I'm like, oh, my God. Like, that's just, like it's like, egg it, like, Twitter wants to egg me on. It almost yeah. knows, like, if I show her this shit, she will quote RT it. And people will yeah. all get all pissed off in the comments and generate this yeah. huge fucking thing that goes yeah. viral. I'm like, oh yeah. god. No, it's it's true. I mean, I'm I'm either sending like Sophie from Dumb Bitch Media or Andre to me something every day, and they're like to totally different people and like very different walks of life. But it's like it's just it targets stuff, and they're like, David will share this with them. It, it, they know it. Yeah, and there's people I will mute. Because I'm like, I never want to see this. And people consistently send me tweets by people I've blocked and muted preemptively to just not have to see their stuff so I don't get mad. But yeah. then I have to get mad anyways because people yeah. just send me it. And I'm like, how would you? How do people know that this is the stuff that makes me angry? Yeah. No, they know. Uh -huh. They know. No, it's, it's rage posting is a way of life. And I'm trying not to do it. Uh, it's my 2020. You know, I, I'm not big on New Year's resolutions. But this year uh, is to uh, live a little bit more, go out a little bit more, go for more walks, work out more. Uh, eat some more fish and uh, rage post less. Yeah, that's fair. I'm lucky that do, I get to uh, go here. So. Yeah. Did you do any yeah. resolutions, Sophie? Me? Yeah. No. Uh, no, because it almost felt like what? <sighs> there's feels like there's no structure to the year. So it kind of felt like, oh, this day is the same as every other COVID yeah. day. So it's like, yeah. I don't know. It just, it feels like it's just been one continuous, I don't even know how to explain it, but it doesn't feel like time has changed, like things are shifting yeah, and changing. Exactly. We're still like in the second year of the pandemic and I actually think it's going to be fucking worse than last year. So yeah. I'm like, every I couldn't bit, think of so a resolution because I didn't feel like a year had passed. That's what I'm saying. Like it, yeah. I also like, if I want to not do something, I'll just not do it at any time of the year. <laughs> like I, I threw my jewel out in September. I guess that yeah. would have been a resolution, and I haven't yeah. used any nicotine shit since. So yeah. I just did it. I literally just chucked it in the garbage, and I was like, "See you later, jewel." Yeah. So I was worried that my lungs were gonna look like a honeycomb. Yeah. Yeah. Full of like jewel syrup. <laughs> I I've heard that, that this is not an advertisement or, or anything, but I, I had heard if you if you jewel or you smoke, you don't get COVID, but. Um, we can't can't really speak to that right now. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think of who I know who jewels. No, I know an Irish girl who jewels, and she got COVID from her sister. Yeah. Well, see, and she's might, might prove it wrong. <laughs> yeah, and she's like she's like 24, or 25, and she says she still can't work out because her lungs are fucked. And she's totally yeah. healthy. She's like a power lifter. That's a shame. That's a shame. Yeah. 
Up so his where can we? His, uh, vape into the <laughs> into the webcam like some sort of 1940s femme fatale hussy. Quite <laughs> <laughs> funny. Well, listen, uh, Sophie, it's been absolutely lovely to have you on, um, and uh, it's been yeah. Maybe we can do another in the future. So everybody, follow Sophie's music at Marmoset Music uh, at, at Twitter, and her podcast is DJC. DCJ pod and you can follow her at internet daughter so check her out at internet daughter very funny very good uh, always fresh posts you can't can't beat it thank you Sophie for joining us and it's been lovely to have you on and you can also follow the popular pod itself at patreon.com slash the popular pod which is us uh, I hope you've had a fun time tonight James you look like you're ready to say something are you uh, I was just going to play us out with the final jingle. We've got a massive episode next week um, on video games. We've got people from the gaming industry and every basically every level of it. People from unionizing the game industry, people from designers, people from coders, artists, commentators, journalists, academics on games. We've got the whole spread of people from across the games industry who want to talk about politics and games and what the left can do with games. So if there's any uh, any small shred of you that's interested in gaming, you should be here next week, Wednesday at the same time, uh, every Wednesday at the same time. And for, for me, it's good night. David, good night. Izzy, good night. Good night. And James, it's over to you to play us out. It was the question on everybody's lips. I'm not sure if we answered it. But if you stick around, we'll try to get it right next week. Now it's the end of the popular show, and we thought you might like to know. If you don't forget to like and subscribe, 